to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Escape from New York. In 1997, when the U.S. president crashes into Manhattan, now a giant maximum security prison, a convicted bank robber is sent in to rescue him. Ooh, this, this movie is from the past, but telling the future and also our present. <laughs> it's a lot to talk about, and we need a guest to help us with that. We need a guest? Yes, we do. And who is our guest this week? Our guest is the amazing, and now we can complete the trifecta of the founders of the Role to Play Network. <laughs> it is my fellow co-host, an amazing all-around person, one Kristen Devine. Hi, thanks so much for having me. What an introduction. <laughs> we like to build up our people. Of course. They're our favorite people. We gas up all our guests. Y'all are wonderful. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk about this movie. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you had seen Escape from LA, but not New York, correct? I was informed today by my partner that apparently I did see Escape from New York seven or eight years ago. I didn't remember it. Mm. I So I watched it and then I rewatched it again today because i do my homework when i'm a guest (laughs) kristen gets extra points for being such a fabulous guest you had never seen it diana i had never seen this before and i had seen this quite a while ago okay wow this movie is okay i knew about like the concepts of this movie and kristen is going to be doing a two-parter here kristen's going to be doing new york and la yeah because we can't talk about the one and not examine the other. And also we're completionists here. So <laughs> this is how we roll. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Okay. Y'all, okay. Y'all explain your experiences with this movie. Well, like <laughs> the thing is, I remember watching this movie when I did and mostly just enjoying it as the dark action fantasy. It is because it's a completely different take on action. I think what helps is that this is a horror movie director. Okay. A guy who has built his entire career mostly on horror doing an action film. It did not strike me how pertinent and important this movie still is. And at the time, what it meant until watching it now. Yeah. Kristen, what was your experience watching this film? You looked like you were processing that. and I didn't want to interrupt the process. Definitely processing. Because this movie is wild. It is wild. My... My experience was also, wow, oh my God, kind of a little speechless. Uh, when I was watching it and taking notes for the show, I paused it in the beginning and I was like, wait, we're going to talk about a movie where the premise is that Manhattan has become a maximum security prison and the president puts himself into a bright red escape pod and shoots himself in it. And now Snake Plissken has to go and rescue him. Like, uh-huh. That's everything I love. Every word I just said, I love. <laughs> it's an amazing premise. Yes. For sure. It like, does. I, I am an action fan. So the mm-hmm. fact that it's taken me this long to see this makes me sad. And I just want to state for the record, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. Yes. Absolutely. This film was so much fun. <laughs> it fucking rocks. It's okay. bonkers as hell. <laughs> but like, okay. Manhattan as a prison is just so accurate on so many levels. Well, and especially in 1981. Like, at the time this movie was made, the late 70s, early 80s were, like, the absolute low point for Manhattan. Okay. 
that was when it was it's at its grimiest. Okay. And, you know, one of the craziest parts about this whole movie is they never filmed in Manhattan. None of this was in New York. Yeah. I didn't know that, but that seems right. <laughs> that, that totally makes sense. <laughs> but even so, they captured the feeling of what New York was at that time to most mm-hmm. people. And now it it has become that, be- not because it's a prison, but because we are in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the same principle. Yeah, kind of. Like, yeah, it really is. Like, you're not allowed to go outside your designated areas. Like, these people stay here. This group of people stays there. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is the designated food drop. Yeah. And for Carpenter to come in and write a movie in which the hero is like the anti-Rambo. Yeah. Certified badass, war vet, but hates the fucking system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in. Find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. Like, Rambo hated the system, but that's because it failed him. This guy just hates the system. Because they're jackasses. They're jackasses, and he's being punished by this system. Yeah, because they didn't give him a fair shake, so he stole his. Yeah. And has decided, no, actually, y'all are assholes, and I don't want to help you. Oh, and because it it won't be said enough, Kurt Russell is so attractive. Uh Uh-huh. His hair. That hair is His eye patch. His eye patch and the hair is so majestic. He has majestic hair. It is majestic hair. I have a note and it just says snake Pliskin's pants exclamation point because his this was made in 81 correct yeah. yes it, his pants are straight out of 1979 they're amazing his his pants are my favorite <laughs> those pants are a look <laughs> and they're amazing yes but at no point has this premise gone stale no Mm-mm. you could remake this in any like i'm surprised this movie hasn't been remade a thousand times already I mean, it kind of has. Okay, like similar premises and ideas, sure. Probably the latest version I know of is the Guy Pierce movie Lockdown. Or actually Stallone and Schwarzenegger did one called Lockdown as well. So like they've they've redone this premise a few times, but never with this kind of style and commentary involved. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been a direct remake. No. A reboot of this franchise. I'm surprised. Though now, given our current climate, uh, it's happening. I'm There's sure no it way it's so. not happening. It would be amazing. And yeah. of course, they're going to get John Carpenter to come back and write the music because that's what he does now. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> and oh, and now Kurt Russell should play the president. Ooh. That would be great. Nah, I mean, if Kurt comes back, Kurt is playing Snake for various reasons that we will get into. Oh, okay. But. <laughs> He he will he will be Snake Plissken. He just might not be our hero. He might be our side character. Oh, okay, I'll allow it. I don't know. There's something there's something interesting about this movie. Of Blade Runner came out a year later. Very different style of futuristic dark world. Mm-hmm. Much more grand and epic in how it was looking at things in a film noir style. This was only like 15 years in the future. Yeah, Blade Runner was 50 years in the future. That's true. 
vastly different scope. There was that, but also the vision of the future in this movie is in fitting with it being a low budget movie. Sure. But that is what makes John Carpenter great is that he sees that tiny budget and goes, okay, I'll lean into it. What the hell do we have to do to get this thing across? And he goes dark and grimy because he knows that'll work. Dark and grimy covers a lot of financial sins. This movie, I mean, this movie is <laughs> dark. And I, mm-hmm. and I mean in a lighting way. You can barely see anything. It is very dark. By design. There are moments in this movie where it feels like a straight up horror movie. Oh, sure. When he's going down that alleyway and all the, the street people start walking out. Mm-hmm. Woo! That's oh, a horror movie zombie. Oh, the potholes? Yeah. Oh, that's creeped me the hell out. Yep. Yeah, I did not know. And I purposely didn't look anything up prior to watching it. I wanted to watch it with fresh eyes and then kind of research. And when I got to that scene, I paused it and I said, okay, is this a horror movie director? Because this is a horror movie scene for sure. And I looked it up and I was so proud of myself. I was like, John Carpenter did this. This feels like a horror movie. The score and some of the scenes definitely feel, have that horror feeling, which makes it so unique for an 80s action movie. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We are positive on this movie. Let's Mm -hmm. get into it. Our budget was $6 million. It's actually a pretty good chunk of money for John Carpenter. For John Carpenter, but for an action movie, that's still no money. Not very much at all. Total gross, it made $25,250,000. Pretty good return. This movie has lived its life as a cult classic. Sure. That's what made this movie what it was. Despite the low budget, this was the most money John Carpenter and his partner Deborah Hill had ever worked with in a movie up until this point. So, like, we're talking Halloween had already been made. They got like what a million for each one of those, about I, I, maybe less. And he'd done the fog, yeah, which that one is notoriously low budget because the, the villain in that movie is literally fog that obscures the camera. <laughs> <laughs> and the man made a compelling movie out of it, like that's the genius. As he put, this is the longest and most logistically complex production that they ever did. It was shot between August and November of 1980. So logistically complex and it took him four months. Okay. By action movie standards today, that's nothing. No. But you know, he made Halloween in like three weeks. He's quoted as saying, we'd finish shooting at about 6 a.m. and I'd just be going to sleep at 7 when the sun would come up. I'd wake up around 5 or 6 p.m. depending on whether or not we had dailies. And by the time I got going, the sun would be setting. So for about two and a half months, I never saw daylight, which was really strange. That makes sense. Yeah, this whole film takes place at night. Yeah. (laughs) But there are things that are filmed that so feels like it was day shot for night. The special effects. Some of the special effects. It looks like they shot daytime for nighttime, and it's very bizarre. And we'll get to part of why that is. But there was a 180-person fully union crew, which was also new to them. They usually had, like, no union skeleton crew to work with. So for our writing, first we have John Carpenter. Obviously, we've discussed him before for Halloween. Uh, Before this, he also wrote Assault on Precinct 13, Eyes of Laura Mars, and The Fog. After this, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Black Moon Rising, Prince of Darkness, They Live, Escape from L.A., and Ghosts of Mars. Then, also credited as a writer for this movie, Nick Castle, The Shape of Michael Myers. 
Before this, he wrote Skate Town USA, and after this, he wrote parts of the movie Tag the Assassination Game, The Boy Who Could Fly, The Screen Story for Hook. Didn't write the screenplay, but got the original story credit. For Hook? Yes, Nick Castle, The Shape of Michael Myers. For Hook. Uh Uh-huh, and August Rush. Nick Castle also directed The Last Starfighter, Dennis the Menace, Major Pain, and Mr. Wrong. Damn. Nick Castle's had a wild career in movies. He's a varied career for sure. Now, according to Carpenter, he came up with the idea for the cabbie character and the ending for the film. And because of that, he got him full credit with the Writers Guild. What do we think of the writing? I mean, the story is solid. Yeah. It's a great premise. I mean, there's some dialogue that could use a little bit of help. I mean, it's a little eh. But in terms of story, it all makes complete sense. It all makes complete sense. And even for a movie from 1981 with a few blind spots here and there, I don't even have complaints about all the characters. Like even Isaac Hayes' character, Mm -hmm. while a bit of a stereotype, is also bucking that trend in a lot of ways for what would have been put in movies in 1981. I, I think that's fair. The main updates we would make today is we would have more people of color and more ladies. Yeah. Like, I, I think that's the main thing. And, like, the main character could be, like, a badass lady and not just some white dude. Like, that would be my, the, the main updates to this type of story. I got no problem with Lady Pliskin. <laughs> lady Pliskin would be the shit. Right? That would be so cool. So let's be clear. Adrian Barbeau is a badass in this movie. She's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the story's kick-ass. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I have zero complaints about the writing when it comes to the story. There are a few things that I wanted to know more about, but I think that speaks to how well it's done, that I kind of wanted to see more or a prequel. I wanted to know more about background of characters, but again, that's a credit to the movie and not a negative. Yeah, the dialogue wasn't anything spectacular, but it's a 1980s action movie that's on par. That's <laughs> kind of why you love them so much. They're not here for long, important monologues. So I like the writing. Uh, yeah, Snake doesn't talk. <laughs> not, not a lot. He no. really doesn't. He lets his, his angry face do all the fucking work. <laughs> he sighs a lot. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's Harry Dean Stanton and Ernest Borgnine who have the longest runs of lines in this damn movie. <laughs> Bad neighborhood, Snake. You don't want to be walking from the power to 42nd Street at night. Ha! I've been driving a cab here for 30 years, and I'm telling you, you don't walk around here at night. <laughs> yes, sir. It'll kill you and strip you in 10 seconds flat. Usually, I'm not done around here myself, but I wanted to catch that show. This stuff is like gold around here, you know. It's like gold. Yeah, and I, I completely agree, Chris, that I wanted to know more about, like, this, like, duke like government system that they have created this hierarchy that they've created within this island i was like how did this happen i want the prequel of that (laughs) exactly how how did they put these chandeliers on this car how i want to know about that process that's badass because it is amazing (laughs) i wrote i have another note the duke's car (laughs) what is this chandeliers are so good it's the kind of thing where it's like, it's both a status symbol, but it's also 
the kind of simple basic solution that they would have stolen from a home goods store Mm -hmm. just to throw on the car and and thrown on there in a day because they're in the middle of a lawless city. Sure. So of course that's what they would do. Sure. This movie is practical to the nth degree, and that's what makes it so fun to watch. Which I always appreciate practicality. Yeah. I really do. Every character is not choosing some elaborate way to figure out what they're going to do. They choose the most practical, simple take to go forward. It just so happens that occasionally that's going to be an incredibly violent thing to have to go through. Oh, well, this is the world they've created. Pretty much. So speaking to that backstory stuff, there is a scene that was cut showing Snake and an accomplice robbing a bank and leading to his arrest. That was going to explain how he got arrested in the first place. But Carpenter chose to cut it. And then they had tons of backstory elements that actually got put in the novelization. But when Castle wrote all this stuff, he and Carpenter went and looked at it and Carpenter said, no, I don't want to use any of it. I don't fucking care. Mm-hmm. I The audience is not going to care about any of this and it's just gonna bore them if i say it oh i completely agree i mean you want to get to the the through storyline a novelization that makes sense you've got time to wander yeah and like give this character a storyline and you know it's the side quest but in a movie or like a tv show you can do that but in a movie you need the hour and a half of like we're going from this point to this point and that's what's happening and this movie this movie is not going to get huge promotion it's a hard r violent action film With some horror elements, they have got to keep people engaged. So the story actually takes place after a war with the USSR. There's motivation and backstory about Snake and Hulk having a relationship as jaded war veterans from World War III. So the police guy used to also be a veteran and fought in the wars. Snake lost his eye in the battle for Leningrad in World War III. And so Hulk became New York's warden after the fallout from the war. And there's this whole secondary plot of Hulk trying to find his son who is living in the prison, which they just went, no. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. Yeah. But that's a, that's a lot to put on this story. It's too much. And then it gets even darker. It describes that the West Coast becomes a no man's land, like it's just a desert wasteland now. And the U.S. population is slowly being driven insane by exposure to nerve gas. Ooh. I mean, that's. <laughs> eh. Told y'all this movie was accurate for this <laughs> Yes. Wow. Feels like it, it could be a little too real. <laughs> but even then, just having the movie as is a blowhard president, a system which is set up to just brutally cage every prisoner that they can think of. Yep. And we don't know how many of these people are actually prisoners. Yep. Like, Susan Hubley's character, the girl in the chock full of nuts store. I get no vibe that she's done anything wrong other than she happened to be in New York. Because it feels like if you were in New York, it doesn't matter whether you were a criminal or not, you are now in the prison. There's that, but I'm just going to say it. Almost all of the women we see, based on how they have them costume, they make it feel like they were all sex workers. Very possible. That's the vibe that they are giving to these women, which is not cool or fair. They could be badass criminals, too. Yeah. No, and some of that is a byproduct of the time. They could be in charge of cartels. They could be hard murderers. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it's it's not just playing into the tropes. It's playing to the tropes in New York of sure. sex work of being course. such a huge part of New York's economy in the late 70s and the early 80s. Yeah. And so it's almost a, a geographic stereotype as much as it is a gender stereotype. 
but it's still leaning into that really hard. Sure. But I that would have been an interesting dynamic to play with in the story if they had something where like, oh, these are the people who got stuck in New York, so they're just here. One scene of that would have been really great to see. Or finding out that like Harry Dean Stanton's character was one of those people. Where now he's made a life for himself here, but now he just got caught up in it. Now he's the Duke of New York because he just happened to be there. That, that could have been he cool. knows He knows the library. He knows where to find everything. That's why, that's the only reason he's important. That could have been cool. But you know. We they, added it, something to the movie that would, that's missing. Okay. But, as, but as Carpenter said, who the fuck is going to care? <laughs> I mean, it's not yeah. missing, but I would have enjoyed it. They originally wrote the script in the mid-70s reacting to Watergate. They could not get it produced because of how dark the material was. They wrote this before Halloween. So they only got approached for it because of Halloween's success. Okay. And Avco Embassy, the studio who wound up producing it, wanted them to do the movie The Philadelphia Experiment, which came out around this time. That's a time travel plane Navy movie, which is weird and dumb. Um, but Carpenter got stuck working on that, pitched it, and apparently Avco Embassy just greenlit it right off the bat. And also, Carpenter said he was inspired by Taxi Driver and Death Hunt in the Dark Vigilante character. But he flips that trope. I definitely feel the Taxi Driver vibes. It's that Vigilante vibe, but he takes that Travis Bickle and flips it. Because this guy doesn't care. Snake does not care about anybody but Snake Plissken. The problem is, is they say, you're gonna die if you don't do this. I go back and forth on whether or not I like that. I like it only compared to the time. I feel like a lot of action heroes in the 80s do anything to save the person who needs to be saved. Often it's a female from that time. Sure. I loved when the girl in the bar, was it was it chock full of nuts what was it yeah in the chock full of nuts yes i love that she fell in through the floor when the crazies that's what they call them i saw when the crazies grabbed her he does not go in after her no there was a beat where i thought he's going after her right mel gibson in the 80s would go in after her in these movies he does it and i loved that i was like yes that's true to character Mm -hmm. right nope i'm not here for you I'm not here for you. I'm here for one thing and one thing only. Because that's the thing. They don't even expect him to make it. They're like, you're probably our best hope at this suicide mission, but also, you're not going to make it out alive. Yeah. We just get a photo op with the president. Basically. Like, it would shock me in the least that they have snipers on the wall ready to shoot Snake and get the president. But, you know, Hauk only, only stops everybody to be like, no, 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 my guy is down there. Yeah. Out of that tiny sense of loyalty. Duty. You gonna kill me now, Snake? I'm too tired. Maybe later. He he doesn't care, and that is what makes Snake Plissken such a fascinating and different iconic character. He's he is a very pure anti-hero. And you up until now that wasn't really a thing. Yeah, it's probably so. fair. Alright. Our director is John Carpenter. Before this, he directed Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, the 1979 Elvis television movie, which is exactly how Kurt Russell got involved in this, The Fog. After this, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, 
Memoirs of an Invisible Man, In the Mouth of Madness, Village of the Damned, Escape from L.A., Vampires, Ghosts of Mars, and The Ward. Now he is making music full time because he did that for all his movies. He was making he was making he was a composer during all this, too. Yeah, but that's, but... His, that's his main gig. So what do we think of the directing of this movie? He directed an action film like a horror film, which is cool. Yeah, it's it's very cool and and makes it very different. And I think that adds to a tone to this film that another director would have missed. We probably wouldn't have gotten as much nighttime or they would have gone for like a lot more brightness in different places. It wouldn't have gone for gritty. And and I think we would have missed something if we hadn't had all the gritty and darkness. Yeah, I wonder if other directors would have tried to ape a taxi driver vibe, like a second rent Scorsese. Because Scorsese captured New York in a similar vein, even though it's more of a fever dream vein than this. But in this, it is. It's just pure darkness and shadow. And what is in that shadow? Because you don't know until it finally pops out. Yeah, that's something that they don't really do in action movies now. Nobody thinks to to mix that. They'll put a few things here and there, but nobody thinks to be like, you can take horror movie tropes and throw it into a pure action style. You know, the last movie that played with let's film an action film in different genre styles was Deadpool 2. Yeah. Where they decided to play with that and like, let's. Let's mess with you a little bit to toy with your emotions. That they did that on purpose, and it was fun and it was effective. Yeah, I really enjoyed the directing. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure I'd have a lot to comment on when it came to the directing, but after watching it a second time, I there's a few scenes where the camera stops and Kurt Russell just walks further away from the camera down the street, and it's almost at street level, and so you can really see. There's like sinks lying around. Mm-hmm. You just really see the set and it makes it feel big. And it kind of gives you that feeling of what the prison really is. And I just, I just really, really enjoyed that. Yeah. And I really liked the darkness at first, the first couple of scenes that were really dark. I was, I was thinking, is it because it's an eighties film? And so <laughs> they didn't have light. So it took me a beat to catch on. But once I did, then I was like, no, this all goes together. This is fantastic. So. I thought it was great. Well, and and by by leaning into that darkness, then when the people from the sewers pop up, like, oh fuck! Mm-hmm. What the hell did oh, you just Oh shit! Like those moments really do freak you out in a great way. Even when we go to like the Duke's hideout with the lights, it's... when it's like when you turn the lights mm-hmm. on, now you see how grimy it is, mm-hmm. and how just like, oh no. They've let all of this fall apart. Yeah, it's gross. And it's just yeah. like, okay, wow. It's such a stark contrast to being out in the streets not knowing what's there. And then when you can see it, it's like, oh, it's even worse than I thought. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant move. And it a lot of it was done out of necessity. And also, super weird seeing the Twin Towers. Yeah, yes. a little weird. Super weird. I think the last film where I really actually like saw the Twin Towers was Man on a Wire. Mm-hmm. And that was the guy who did the tightrope walk between the two. Right. And now it's just like, oh, this was them in the 80s when those were like the coolest building in the world. And it's like, oh, those don't exist anymore. Right. Because of tragedy. Yeah. And sadness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This makes sense. Yeah. And it wasn't just like in some movies, when you rewatch them, 
you know, they are, they take places in New York or Manhattan. And so they start out and you see the skyline, the skyline and, you're like, and you oh, kind of get yeah. that feeling. You're like, Oh gosh. Yeah. I know when this was made. And sure. of course it has that feeling and remembrance, but they talk about the towers. He lands his plane. Like it's heavily involved it's a in the set movie. Piece. It's a set it piece for the film. And you're like, Oh shit. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it, it just because you know, I had I had never been to them. I had never been to New York when they existed. So it was just like, oh yeah, like those used to be a big fucking deal. Like those were a tourist yep. attraction. Mm-hmm. It's one of those weird things of watching this film now. Yeah, mm-hmm. and practically, it was the flattest, tallest place you could land something. On. <laughs> so made sense story wise, and it's in the heart of the city. Sense. So you can get anywhere from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean all of like again. This story is very sound. He thought through every detail of what was going to happen. Which I really appreciate because Diana as a person cannot be a part of a shitty plan. (laughs) I'm allergic to it as a human being. So I really appreciate this. It's not a shitty plan, but it is a extremely difficult and uncertain plan because, you know, it's contingent on Snake being badass enough to get through it. But he's, mm-hmm. he's badass enough. It's like, true. We know uh, this. <laughs> Kurt Russell's in the movie. He's badass The enough. second he walks out of that helicopter, you're like, nah, he's going to beat everybody in this movie. I've seen Overboard and Captain Ron enough. I know. He's bad <laughs> enough for this. We're good. We're good. Uh... All right. So Carpenter wanted two separate looks for the film. One is the police state, high tech, lots of neon, a United States dominated by underground computers. So that's where the significant lighting comes in. So when they're in the control center and on the roof, that was easy to shoot compared to the Manhattan Island prison sequences, which had few lights, mainly torch lights like feudal England. Okay. Thinking about especially some of those like road shots, there is sort of that night fantasy feel okay. where you're walking into a dungeon you don't know what's lurking around the corner okay. there is that little bit of feeling there I, I i can believe that that makes sense now that you explained it that way now the problem was that carpenter had to create a decaying destroyed new york city with no money sure. so his designer rejected shooting in new york because it was going to be too hard to get the destroyed look it was too clean yeah new york was at its roughest point but even so, there are still parts of New York that were like completely clean. Like you'd still have to trash it with all the stuff in the design. And then you have to spend the money to go film in New York. Mm-hmm. That's not going to work. So Carpenter said, why don't we use a back lot? But Alvis said he doesn't like that because the texture of a real street doesn't feel like a back lot. Mm-hmm. I cannot get you that street feel. So they got their location manager, Barry Bernardi, on, quote, a sort of all-expense-paid trip across the country looking for the worst city in America. (laughs) And they found it. (laughs) They settled on East St. Louis, Illinois, where neighborhoods had been destroyed in 1976 due to a massive fire. Okay. And it had become, unfortunately, a low-income place with incredibly run-down buildings and housing. The thing was, was that all the buildings also had the same turn-of-the-century architectural feel as Manhattan. Okay. But with the seediness that they needed to make the city look bad. Okay, that makes sense. Now, the problem with that was, was it made filming a little touch-and-go. Kurt actually had a run-in with a local gang on set. (laughs) He had inadvertently strayed into their territory, but he looked so intimidating in costume that they decided not to give him any trouble. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, okay, I think that's fair. You you see anybody with an eye patch, like that type of eye patch, not like a yes. medical eye patch, and you're just like, that person has seen some things. I, I don't want to mess with them. With an yes. eye patch, greasy but feathered hair. Hair is majestic. That's and hair. It's majestic hair. And ripped, but in a way that's like I've chewed iron for like nine years straight and not I've sculpted my body by working out with, with in, in a state-of-the-art gym. And also those hot, hot pants. Like he looks prison cut, not bodybuilder <laughs> cut. Prison hot. Prison cut. <laughs> uh John Carpenter actually purchased the old Chain of Rocks bridge from the city of St. Louis for $1, then returning it for the same amount when filming completed. That bridge, which is the centerpiece of the the finale, is a Mm -hmm. dead ringer for the 59th Street Bridge. Oh, okay. Has the same style, looks exactly the same. So he just, the whole thing was, nobody's using it. I'm going to buy it from you so I can do whatever I need to on it while we film this. Oh, well. And then I will give it back to the city when we're done. So it's easy enough for us to just shut down. That's fair. Um, That's smart. But yeah, that was the coolest part was they could make it look like an actual New York bridge. I like that. They convinced authorities to shut off electricity for 10 full blocks each night of filming. (laughs) Wow. The fight of the boxing ring was filmed in the abandoned Grand Hall of the St. Louis Union Station um, a few years before they renovated it. The exterior doubles for Madison Square Garden. Oh, okay. You can actually, if you're looking at it, make out the stained glass windows that show New York City, St. Louis, and San Francisco in the background. And that stained glass is now in the front entry of the renovated building today. And then to get the World Trade Center, they just used some of the skyscrapers in LA. Oh, okay. And just mimicked it off the shots. Yeah, stupid. That makes sense. Yep. They filmed exactly one scene in New York, and that is Liberty Island. The scene at the Statue of Liberty with the security officers, which makes sense. You cannot, you're either going to have to do a backdrop or a set stage. And instead, it was cheap enough to just go to Liberty Island, get the quick shot and be done. They don't make a lot of money there, so it's really not that <laughs> that expensive to film there. Yeah. And Carpenter's director of photography, Dean Cundy, actually came up with some innovations for this movie. He used a new lens that got so much more light, which was absolutely necessary for the night shoots. They also invented a computerized light modulator used for the first time on the film. What that did was that they could mimic the light patterns of fire from the torches that would be set up. So you'd established there were torches, but then you didn't need the torches put everywhere on set. So you could get the same lighting effect from torches without having to need one on the set itself. Fire safe. He also reused the Panaglide image stabilizer that they had used in Halloween to create the smooth tracking shots that they got. Wow. So especially especially that opening scene with the glider, that model mm-hmm. shot that they've still made look like it's one continuous shot through the through the sky. And different shots like that, they were they were using some of the same techniques they used in Halloween to get those effects. That's pretty cool. So John Carpenter, we can agree, did a pretty good job with this movie. Let's talk about our cast. And we start with Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. The best case scenario for a child actor ever. One of, for sure. For real. Uh, This man has had a legendary career. First time we're really talking about him on this show. Yeah. Wow. Before this, the horse in the gray flannel suit, 
the computer wore tennis shoes, the barefoot executive, the strongest man in the world, Elvis, 1979, remember that, and used cars. After this, the fox and the hound, the thing, Silkwood, swing shift, big trouble in little China, overboard, tequila sunrise, tango and cash, backdraft, Captain Ron, tombstone, Stargate, executive decision, escape from LA, breakdown, soldier, 3,000 miles to Graceland, vanilla sky, miracle, sky high, Poseidon, death proof, furious seven, bone tomahawk, the Hateful Eight, Deepwater Horizon, The Fate of the Furious, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, The Christmas Chronicles, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he will be returning as Santa Claus in The Christmas Chronicles 2. What do we think of Kurt Russell in this movie? Those are just the big hits, right? Those are just the hits. He's got so <laughs> many more movies he's done. He's so dreamy. He has, he has the majestic hair. He's so grumpy. He is very grumpy. In the best way. He's very bitter. Like... He's the exact right tone for this character because you totally understand why he's pissed and he doesn't want to be like this fucking sucks. He did a bad, but he's going to jail and this jail sucks. This is the worst possible scenario for jail. And then finally he's accepted his fate with that. And it was like, fuck you. I'm not helping you out with this bullshit. Just put me in the prison. And then they put a bomb in his neck. Okay, so now I have no option other than to at least try. <laughs> I have to at least try. Like the look on his face when he figures it out and he's about to kill that medic. Like just break his neck right in the room. Which, uh, yeah. <laughs> and how has to calm him down. Deserved. But like, he's he's so good. He's so entertaining. I for someone whose dialogue must have been one and a half pages for the entire movie, <laughs> I was thrilled. It probably, I mean, obviously me watching it now, I already have seen many of the movies that you listed that he was in after, but for the time, it was probably so helpful to have like almost a no-name in there so you wouldn't associate it with like a Stallone or you know anyone else from that time. But Kurt Russell, awesome. I agree the hair is majestic. The pants are good. He pulls off the eye patch. Yes. I feel like he, like you just think that he, he either lost it in war or he lost it in some bar fight and you know he just put that patch on himself. Mm -hmm. I just, I believed he was snake. Yeah, I think if he didn't have the eye patch, he would have been too pretty for jail. Mm -hmm. A little bit. Good point. Too pretty for jail, especially with that hair. He would have needed a buzz cut. Yes. Like even in The Thing, which is, a year later uh -huh. when that comes out. He's got a full beard because he's out in the middle of the Arctic, but he is definitely pretty Kurt Russell. He's always mm -hmm. pretty. Even now, he's a very attractive man. But when you put the eye patch on with the stubble, there is yep. something that transforms with the with the way he looks. And then that sneer that he pulls off so well. Yeah, mm -hmm. he snarls really good. Which he turns into like a side grin so often <laughs> in every other movie he makes. But in this one, it is just... A full of vengeance snarl that he wants to kill everyone. Yeah. The funny thing is, he really wasn't a no-name. He was one of the most famous child actors at the time. Oh, see, I had no... I'm being educated on this amazing podcast. I yeah. had no idea he was a child actor. He lobbied really hard for this role. Because at the time, the only other like grown-up movie he'd made was Used Cars with Robert Zemeckis. Oh, so, okay, that and, makes total sense. This was his transition. And the Elvis movie that he made for TV where he played Elvis and mm -hmm. John Carpenter directed. Mm -hmm. And so Carpenter thought of Kurt for this role, but like everybody knew Kurt Russell as the computer who wore tennis shoes. 
or the accidental billionaire. Like the kid Wiz who was in all these family Disney movies on Sunday nights. And so he's like, I'm 29. He's 29 in this movie. Wow. And he's like, I don't want to play that character forever. Yeah, he's got to make a ch- He's got to prove to everybody I've grown up. And he doesn't want to get pegged into comedy either. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So he pushed really, really hard and Carpenter lobbied for him. And that's how he got the role. He states that this is his personal favorite film. Pliskin is the favorite char- is his favorite character he's ever created. Oh, I believe that. I mean, it's the movie that transformed him from Wonder Kid comedy fun family guy to full-on movie star well yeah if he didn't get this role he d- doesn't let him do anything else mm-hmm. if he didn't get this it was going to be that much longer before he got to be an adult on film yeah to- like no totally he could be eternal babyface, and instead he becomes a full-on movie star yeah it was his idea to have the eye patch it came last second right before shooting started but it really impacted his depth perception so he had to take <laughs> it off between takes <laughs> I believe that. That would mess you up. <laughs> but that was his idea to do that. That's awesome. Brilliant. And why, again, that's very smart to like totally change your look and be like, I am not that cute little kid who's been on TV. I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm a man. I have an eye patch. <laughs> I'm a grown man. I'm a big boy movie star now. It's fucking mm-hmm. true. <laughs> And inspirations for his role included Clint Eastwood, Bruce Lee, and Darth Vader. Yes. Having seen Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon just recently, there are some definite Bruce vibes. Yeah. That very chill, I don't give a fuck attitude Mm -hmm. is very much there with Snake Plissken. But then he's got the Clint Eastwood man with no name. I'm just here to do my job. Get the fuck out of my way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who could have been better? Tommy Lee Jones. No. Nick Nolte. Chuck Norris. <laughs> Me, 1981, Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was thinking hair. That's why I laughed. I was mm, thinking. The mullet, for sure. More he's, hair. he's never not had the bangs. Nope. Mm-hmm. Charles Bronson. Mm. Carpenter refused and turned that down, saying he was too old, and he's right. 1981 Charles Bronson, too old. 1972 Charles Bronson? Different story. When they wrote the film, sure. Early in the 70s, I could see Charles Bronson pulling off this role so well. Jeff Bridges. Oh, okay. And then Chris Christopherson, who was actually being seriously considered, has the gruff look, but Heaven's Gate had failed so badly in 1980 Mm. that he was untouchable in movies. Got the exact, he's got a very similar vibe to what Kurt Russell has in this film, so I get that. But you know now, who else I'd put here? Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott in Another World? Mm. Sam Elliott from Roadhouse? Can you yeah. imagine Sam Elliott in Roadhouse being Snake Plissken? Yes, I can. Woo. He's so hot. Mm-hmm. It's so wrong. Why can one man be so attractive? Hey, Dalton. <laughs> it's so mean. How you doing, brother? It's not fair. It's Uh, just not fair. Nobody but Kurt Russell can play Snake Plissken. Let's let's be very clear. His first choice. And then Sam Elliott from Roadhouse. (laughs) 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 Sam Elliott from Roadhouse for everything. Playing Hauk, Lee Van Cleef. We've also talked about him before on the show. He was the bad in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. 
Mostly known as a Western star, before this, he was in High Noon, Kansas City Confidential, The Lawless Breed, White Lightning, The Nebraskan, The Conqueror, Gunfight at the OK Corral, the 1957 version, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, How the West Was Won, For a Few Dollars More, Death Rides a Horse, and Blood Money. After this movie, he didn't do a whole heck of a lot, though I will mention, because he died shortly thereafter, but I will mention Master Ninja, which is an MST3K classic. He oh, is yeah. in that. I watched that one. <laughs> I totally watched that one super drunk in college. It's bad. 100%. Uh, Lee Van Cleef flew in from LA for a one night shoot and left the next day. Wow. Wow. Now, I think some of this was his health. He was getting a lot older at the time. But the problem was when Carpenter got the dailies back, he noticed some of Cleef's close ups were out of focus. <gasps> They did not have the money to bring him back. So there's some of those shots where they were just like, I have to leave it. There's nothing I can do. I mean, I didn't notice it watching it, so. And he's so good at editing, you don't fucking know. Mm -hmm. I I, I, I legitimately (laughs) didn't notice. And if my brain did, it probably wrote it off as 81. (laughs) I love how John Carpenter is just the most under the radar master director. Like, nobody's going to say, like, oh, he's Hitchcock or Kubrick, but it's like, he does just as much as those other guys, he's but with so much less. He's scrappy. He's so good. Mm-hmm. Lee Van Cleef also suffered a knee injury, and his wife had to help him through the scenes as he was not fully recovered mm-hmm. at the time of filming. The knee injury was not on set, but he was still dealing with it. Bad timing. So he had his wife there for that one night to help film those scenes. What do we think of Lee Van Cleef as Hauk? I think he's a good foil to Snake. You want to talk about the ultimate steely-eyed actor to have to counter snakes being snarling His and sarcastic? Someone who can out-snarl Snake? Is <laughs> that dude? Mm-hmm. That's his entire career for the most part. True. And I love that, you know, when we first meet him, we think, you're going to turn bad at some point. And he never really does. Mm-hmm. In fact, he kind of winds up being on Snake's side. Even though he represents the wrong side of this equation, he's never like a full-on bad, bad guy. I wouldn't say he represents, like he's on, he's a good guy. I would just say that like, he's he's constant. Like he doesn't change at all. He's just like, this is the problem. This is how we're dealing with it. That's it. The end. I have my orders and I'm following them, period. Yeah, that's it. And I don't care if you like it, but if you do what I say, I will do everything I can to get you out alive. Pretty much. I just like that they they didn't just reduce his character to, I'm going to be the guy who puts you in there, and then I'm going to be the guy who leaves you out to dry. Yeah, I was waiting for him to like go back on his word, and I'm really glad they didn't do that. I kind of figured they probably couldn't, because I knew there was a second movie. But I was waiting for him to try to do that, and then the president be the one to be like, no, we have to honor our word, and have it be something like that. But no. So I appreciate that. It's so much better when the president's just like, oh, you, whatever. You have four minutes to talk. (laughs) I don't want to talk to you. Uh, (laughs) It's like, okay. (laughs) Oh, God. Snake's the best. Yeah. Uh, All right. Ernest Borgnine as Cabby, an Academy Award winning actor in this cartoon character role. This. The only person who really, truly smiles in this entire movie. (laughs) He's the happiest dude in this film. I love it. We have talked about him in The Dirty Dozen. But before this, From Here to Eternity, Johnny Guitar, The Bounty Hunter, Vera Cruz, Bad Day at Blackrock, Marty, 
The Last Judgment, Mikhail's Navy, The Flight of the Phoenix, Ice Station Zebra, The Wild Bunch, Willard, The Poseidon Adventure, Jesus of Nazareth, The Greatest, Convoy, and The Black Hole. After this movie, he was in Airwolf, All Dogs Go to Heaven 2, The Single Guy, Mikhail's Navy in 1997, Gattaca, Small Soldiers, Basketball, Mel, The Last Great Ride, Mermaid Man and Spongebob, and the movie Red. I mean, Ernest Borgnine's great in everything he's in. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, He's awesome. I love his character. I love that they have a cab driver. (laughs) Because you can't have New York without a cab driver. And he's a cabbie who knows everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's just beautiful. He's like, Snake Plissken? You're awesome. Why are you in jail? (laughs) How'd you get here? He's just ready to help everyone. And you are legit sad when he gets killed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He did feel like, oh man, he was a good dude. One of the only good dudes. Lord knows he probably did something to get himself thrown in there. Or maybe he was just a cabbie. We don't know. Maybe he was one of the people who was stuck on the island. You definitely got that feeling from his character. Maybe. The thing is, he goes to a Broadway theater, and it's this complete scene of debauchery. And yet he's still watching it. Like it's a Broadway show. Uh, it's not debauchery. They're putting on a show. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Did you listen to the lyrics of that song? <laughs> we don't know how long they've been there. Okay. Just saying. I mean, the art the art that comes out of desperate times can be really life changing, David. <laughs> you of all people would say some shit like that. Uh. <laughs> I've been around you for too many years. <sighs> The only real note I had for him was that this character was written with him in mind. I believe So. I believe that. But yeah, he's great. Donald Pleasance as the president. Donald Pleasance. We have talked about him multiple times. He was Loomis in Halloween and Blofeld in You Only Live Twice. What do we think of Donald Pleasance in this film? I wanted more, for one thing. Because we only get to see that smarm really at the very end. Mostly we just see him as cowering and like running away from any moment where he could actually be brave. But I wish we'd gotten more of that through the movie. I mean, I feel like he is like doing a Hitchcock impersonation. (laughs) And then I feel like maybe my one complaint was right. I never really get what they're trying to do with the president. Like what's like, what's your real aim? Like, yeah. If you get him and you kill him, nothing's going to change for y'all in in your Manhattan prison. Like, nothing's going to change. So this plan sucks. So I would have liked to see some scenes with the president with his captors. Especially with the Duke. To see some sort of, like, what is the overall master plan? I mean, at one point, it's hinted at that they're looking for full immunity. Yeah. They're basically like, make us independent. We're now our own nation. We rule ourselves. And the prison is gone. That's really the plan. But it's never really talked about all that much. It, I guess it was too vague for me to really pick up yeah. on that. So, okay. That may be my one actual story. But I could like that could have been massaged a little bit. But yeah, I feel like he's doing a Hitchcock impersonation a little bit. <laughs> And he kind of sucks in this movie. Uh, I just don't care. That's fair. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> He's not in it enough for me to care. It would have been nice to see a sit down with him and the Duke. Because I, I know y'all aren't talking about the Duke yet. But having a few moments of dialogue between those two would have been nice. Absolutely. 
The character was pitched to him as the love child between Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Which is just like, oh, double evil. Wow. He doesn't capture the unctuousness and evilness of the slick conservatism of Thatcher and Reagan at all. Because there's such a slick commercial marketing vision that was behind those two very different kinds of marketing like margaret thatcher was super tough tough bulldog british and reagan was you know mr america's uncle or granddad Mm -hmm. and like he doesn't get either of those vibes he just seems like a coward which is fair but we needed a lot more of that personality to come through yeah Mm -hmm. and part of it's just donald pleasance is not the right guy for that He's a good actor, but that's not the right lane for him. It was Pleasance's I improvised that whole moment, <laughs> which is brilliant. That's because Ed, Donald Pleasance has been bald since the 60s. Sure. <laughs> so like for him to throw a wig on out of vanity in this movie, mm-hmm. it's fucking hilarious. Also relevant to today. Uh, mm, mm, maybe. Mm. Woo. <sighs> <laughs> And he actually came up with a whole backstory about how he became president with an English accent because he felt a little self-conscious about why am I the U.S. president when I'm just using my normal British accent. So he had this whole thing that the U.S. joined the British Empire after the war ended, and that meant that the president no longer had to be a U.S. citizen. Oh, okay. And Carpenter heard him out and said, you know, I think that's a great idea. I don't care. We're not putting it in the movie. (laughs) <laughs> and just told him just do your accent i don't care <laughs> i'm also fine with this yeah i appreciate the backstory absolutely love when people have backstories i appreciate that thinking through that i really love a director who is like use that backstory i'm not going to explain it to anyone yeah mm-hmm. you just use that to justify what you need to do yeah you did your homework i appreciate it huh gold star for you yeah. <laughs> Isaac Hayes as the Duke. Primarily a musician and composer, most notably for the film Shaft, 1971. He only had a few small film roles before this, but after this, he was in I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, CB4, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, It Could Happen to You, Flipper in 1996, Blues Brothers 2000, Chef on South Park, Reindeer Games, Dr. Doolittle 2, and Hustle and Flow. What do we think of Isaac Hayes in this movie? He plays this role very well. He makes an impact. He makes an impact and he he understands that he doesn't really need to act to embody what the Duke needs to be. That's not to say that he isn't creating a character, but he's just using the charisma that he has as a musician and performer and just backing that with this darkness that his character embodies. Yeah, and then those costumes and that set and that car are doing a lot of work for him. They, they, they really are. Especially the chandeliers. I mean, I need to know more about the chandeliers. This could have easily strayed into stunt casting. And instead, he just seems like a bad dude who fought his way to power and owns this island Mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes. The only thing he doesn't have is control of the perimeter. Yeah. And, you know, I think he does a really great job even when he's not primarily an actor. Oh, I I mean, I've enjoyed Isaac Hayes whenever he's done. Next, we get Season Hubley as the girl in Chock Full of Nuts. Now, kind of a minor role, but she is a big deal. Before this, she was in Lolly Madonna Triple X, Catch My Soul, and 1979's Elvis as Priscilla Presley. 
and hardcore. After this, Vice Squad, All My Children, and then a bunch of straight-to-video movies. The biggest reason she's in this movie is she was Kurt Russell's wife at the time. What? She had just given birth to their son, Boston Russell, when they started making this movie. So often, after the night shoots, Kurt would have to go to the trailer to bottle feed Boston while still in his Snake Plissken costume. Oh, I bet those are some hilarious Are there pictures? pictures I don't this? know, but I hope so. I'm going to do a quick Google. <laughs> I really hope so. And she receives a special appearance credit for her role in the film. Well, so I think why her name was so high up on the credits. Yeah, I think this was, <laughs> one, she was kind of a well-known actor. But one of the biggest reasons she's in the movie is like, our family's going to be here on set. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) my new kid and my wife, we're not leaving them behind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, next up, Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. We've talked about Harry Dean Stanton so many times on this show. He's in so many movies. Previously on our show, we've talked about him for Cool Hand Luke in 1984's Red Dawn. I'm not going to give you the credits because I think we've done it like three or four different times. But what do we think? Of Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton is never bad. He's never bad. It's fun to see him being the jabbery one, though. He's a schmuck in this film. <laughs> he's, he is. He's usually, like, soft-spoken and, like, wise and, and kind of sweet. And this movie, he's an asshole, and that's really fun. Mm-hmm. Like, at first you think, well, okay, he's the brain. He understands what's going on. But about halfway through the movie with him, you're like, Man, fuck you. You're just a jerk. You only give a shit about you, which so does Snake. But we like Snake because he's pretty. (laughs) Majestic hair. Majestic hair. And the fact that that Snake knows Brain Mm -hmm. and is like, you fucking coward. I fought in the damn war and you ran away. I love just the idea of like, give me one reason why I should not kill you right this fucking second. Yeah. As soon as Snake says to him, four years ago, you left... It was me, you, and Fresno Bob. I thought two things. One, who the hell is Fresno Bob and how do we meet him? Mm Because it sounds like you want to have a beer with that guy. And two, that means that Brain has been here less than four years and he's already in charge of the gas, right? He's the gas guy. So he must have something, even though through this movie, he comes across as kind of like your weaker, uh, like cowardly villain almost. Where Isaac Hayes is like a really strong villain. He's kind of your runaway villain. He has to be smart. He has the gas. He is just smart enough to stay ahead of everybody coming after him. Mm -hmm. And he spends the entire rest of the movie justifying why he should not get shot on sight. Because in about every scene he runs into a bad guy, they're ready to kill him. And he has to talk his way out of it. He deserves it. Uh Uh-huh. He really does. He does so much. Uh, It's... (laughs) It's just a fun, different thing that we don't see from him a lot. And finally, for our main cast, Adrian Barbeau as Maggie. Before this, she was on the television show Maud and then The Fog. After this, The Cannonball Run, Swamp Thing, Creep Show, The Thing, Back to School, Demolition Man, Judge Dredd, voiced Catwoman on Batman the Animated Series, then Carnival, General Hospital, and most recently in Argo. What do we think of Adrian Barbeau in this movie? She's great. She's very powerful. Why is she wearing a ball gown? <laughs> yeah, that's that sex worker trope they're leaning into a little hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on the flip side, it's kind of a shame that she didn't get or didn't take a lot more roles, because I think that may be more of it, that she just didn't take those roles that often. 
But I think that's the bigger thing is like she could have been a full on action star mm-hmm. if she really wanted to. She had the presence and the toughness sure. to do that and make a lane for herself. She could have been very much in the vein of a Sigourney Weaver with Ripley could have. And, and made her way kind of down the same path. But for whatever reason, she decided not to do that. And so she's just got a few smatterings of credits here and there. She's still working. She just doesn't, she hasn't done a whole lot. They kind of make her like, she's the arm candy with her brain, but then she's also supposed to be almost like she's the muscle, but they never use her that way. I would have loved her if she was the full-blown muscle for the brain. Like, she is the arm candy that's supposed to make her disarming to people who show up, and then she is there to literally kick anyone's ass. Yeah, the vibe I get is she was always arm candy for the Duke, and that he just relegated to brain because she could fight. Uh, But... Another problematic trope. Problematic, and then we get back to like the sex worker trope. Is that? Oh yeah. There is this feeling of like she was designated to the brain. I mean, there's not a feeling. She says it in a line. Okay. Well, that's that was the vibe I got, and I wasn't entirely sure. I wanted to make sure I wasn't putting something on it. Nah, she she says as much. Okay, but that would have been so much cooler. Yeah. They really could have gone a lot further with that character. Yeah, they could have they could have given her a lot more agency and yeah, it's 1981, but come on. Missed opportunity. That's those are the types of updates we need in a reboot. Oh yeah. I mean, it's more majestic hair. It's more majestic sure. 1981 hair. The, the curly majestic mullet type thing. Very going early in. 80s hair. Yeah, it is very, very early 80s very. hair. I did appreciate at the end where she she, without hesitation, just stands in front of the oncoming car that the Duke is driving, right? Yeah. And just shoots at it until mm-hmm. he hits her or hits another car that hits her. I can't remember exactly how it goes down, but until her demise. I did appreciate that they did that, and she looked badass doing it. Yeah. Because I felt like it that at least gave her, that was a real independent. She chose that. He chose it for herself, and so that I that I really liked, and I thought she was good. I thought I thought she was great. Yeah, we maybe would have liked to have seen the role be a little different, but she was she was very good. Yes. At the time, Adrian Barbeau was married to John Carpenter. Oh. But he also wrote the role with her in mind. So yeah, she gets the starring role in the Fog. Oh, okay. So. I'm not seeing that one. All right, on to random persons of note. Arpons. We have Tom Atkins as Reem. He was in The Fog, played the lead in Halloween 3 and Lethal Weapon. We have Charles Cyphers as the Secretary of State. He was in Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, Elvis in 1979, The Fog, Halloween 2, and he will be making a return in Halloween Kills. <gasps> so excited. Mm-hmm. Frank Doubleday as Romero, the craziest hair I've ever seen <laughs> in a movie. He was also in Assault on Precinct 13 and Broadcast News. Vicangelo Bullock as. And this is the title of it, First Indian. Yeah, there's some bad imagery going on with some of that stuff. This is his only acting role, but he is a longtime producer of the Judge Mathis show and opened the Hollywood Bureau of the NAACP as its executive director. And he is now the managing director of outreach and special events for the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences. He is a black man and is one of the leading voices for diversity and hiring people of color in the movie industry, especially in more recent years. Wonderful. 
So very cool bit player, but has made a major impact on movies. That's awesome. Yeah. Nancy Stevens, as a stewardess, she played Marion Chambers in Halloween. Such a nice little family reunion. <laughs> this is what he does. Yes. All of his minor actors, he just pulls from his same movies. No judgment. You want to work with people that you trust, that you have fun with, that mm-hmm. you you know you're going to have a good time with, and that you want to give a job to. I, I don't have any problems. Or with that. that are just, they know what they're doing and can get the job done. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. Like, you trust them. Bob Miner as the duty sergeant. He is a longtime stuntman and former Mr. Los Angeles bodybuilding title owner. Wow. John Deal is a punk. He had a long run on Miami Vice and Con Air. Oh. Carmen Philby as a bum. He was the old man in the bar in The Wedding Singer and Old Man Withers in Wayne's World. Wow. Wow. I haven't thought about Wayne's World in a really long time. George Buck Flower playing another drunk was the bum in Back to the Future. Al Cerullo is a helicopter pilot. He is one of the longest flying helicopter pilots in movies with 490 credits. And he is involved in maybe one of my favorite helicopter scenes of all time, Cloverfield's helicopter scene. That shot is intense. Ox Baker as Slag. He was a former wrestler and played a constant heel. He is the big guy that Snake has to fight in the boxing ring. Uh, He actually got a little too physical during their fight. When Russell had had enough, he yelled to take it easy and knocked Ox in the groin to let him know he was serious about it. <laughs> Which sounds like something Kurt Russell Amazing. would do. Mm-hmm. Roger Bumpus, a longtime voice actor who is Squidward from Spongebob. He plays a dancer in this movie. He's one of the guys on the stage. We have Merman and Squidward. John Carpenter playing a number of different roles. He is Secret Service number two, a helicopter pilot, and a violin player. Nick Castle plays a pianist. Jamie Lee Curtis is our narrator from the beginning of the film and is the voice of one of the computers. The once great city of New York becomes the one maximum security prison for the entire country. A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All bridges and waterways are mined. She went uncredited so that it would be a surprise for everyone. That's cool. I like that. Deborah Hill, his producing partner, also plays a computer. Okay. And Stephen Ford, the son of President Gerald Ford, talked his way into a role as one of the Secret (laughs) Service agents for the president. Cool. Talked his way into the role. I don't know if he did or not, but he's in this movie, and I'm like, I don't know any other way this guy gets a movie role like that. All right, trivia. Filming was plagued with mosquitoes during the hot and humid St. Louis summer. So, yuck. As I said, the only shot in New York was on Liberty Island beneath the Statue of Liberty. Per Carpenter, quote, They let us have the whole island to ourselves. We were lucky. It wasn't easy to get that initial permission. They'd had a bombing three months earlier and were worried about trouble. Fair. (laughs) But they got the whole fucking island that whole night to themselves. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. The set was repainted and reused for Blade Runner. Oh, I believe that. Mm-hmm. This movie has had major influences on other media coming after it. William Gibson, the cyberpunk guru, credited this as an influence on his novel Neuromancer, especially the line, quote, you flew the Gulf Fire over Leningrad, didn't you? He was intrigued by the way 
that this movie would take something so big, such an epic sci-fi idea, and condense it to a single line. And so tried to recreate that in his cyberpunk work. Hideo Kojima has also often stated the film was a major influence on the Metal Gear game series. Solid Snake is explicitly designed to resemble Snake Plissken. That's cool. So yes, that is for real. In June 2003, Production IG, the production studio behind Ghost in the Shell and Neon Genesis Evangelion, started developing an anime based off of this film, under the supervision of John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and Kurt Russell. Carpenter would score the film, Russell would voice Pliskin. It was supposed to be released in 2005, but it got shelved. It never got made. But there is a 30-second teaser that exists along with character designs and storyboards. We're going to have to find that and add that to show notes, David. Yo. Yo, David. That's going to have to be in the show notes because that's probably bad ass. Yeah. At one point, there was a rumored prequel coming to the film with Chris Hemsworth as Snake and possibly co-starring Summer Glau. Wow. Don't know if that's happening, but you know. Did I blow your mind? That's remember Pam. Tam. Remember Tam. It's been a minute since I've watched Firefly. Wow. The line, I thought you were dead, was probably borrowed from the late John Wayne Western Big Jake, that being the standard response to any character saying his name. (laughs) As a side note, literally every character who says that to Snake, I thought you were dead, ends up dead in this movie. I like that. Cool. That's cool. That's great. The wireframe graphics on the glider were too expensive to computer generate. So instead, Special Effects built a model painted it black, and attached white tape to the buildings in a grid, then moved a camera across the model to achieve the computer effect. Yeah! It looks like a computer screen! They also used a camera control system that was a computer-controlled camera movement repetition device so that they could create in-camera mats. Basically what that meant was they could recreate the New York City backdrop mat without having to blue screen those sequences. When they fed the mat to the computer, it would film in real time and then put the mat on top of that. So that's why it looks like the day shot for night. Uh, there's a little bit of that, way. but they sh- they got that done a month ahead of schedule. Faster than they thought they would have done if they actually had to go in and animate it. And I will say, as rough as that is, that whole New York skyline is hand-painted. And it looks good. Mm-hmm. It's 1981. There's a little bit off on the lighting, but damn, for no budget, they made it look like New York yeah. at night. The Central Park sequence was filmed in San Fernando with matte paintings by a then unknown guy who would go on to be a little director named Jim Cameron, aka James Cameron. What? He did scene painting for oh, this yeah. movie. He was- He's an artist. Yeah, he did yeah. painting for a long time. <laughs> he did all those drawings in Titanic. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. All these guys knew each other. John Carpenter is directly responsible for James Cameron. He's directly responsible for Dan O'Bannon, who's done special effects for all sorts of fucking movies. Wow. Like, he is sort of a director guru guy who has nice. this, like, legacy off of him. All of the manhole covers were wood, not real, because actors would not have been able to lift real manhole covers. <laughs> Fair. The shot of Maggie's body under the Duke's car was actually added after principal photography. Carpenter and Barbeau shot it in their garage under their own car. 
And take this for what you will, because he's kind of a jerk, but J.J. Abrams claimed that as a teenager, he got to see an early screening and offered notes or suggestions to Carpenter and stated that they needed an establishing shot of Maggie's death. So he claims he might have been responsible for that. I believe that little Damon Lindelof would have been that precocious and been like an establishing shot and would have walked away. But little JJ? Oh, no, JJ. Sorry. Yes. Pretentious <laughs> little jerk. Yeah. The president's plane was an aged Convair 580 from an airplane graveyard. They cut it into three pieces and trucked it into the St. Louis locations in the dead of night because they did not have paperwork or permits to bring them in. that's crazy love it the original negative was long thought to be lost but mgm later found it and when they did a re-release they added some of the new elements that they found in that original print oh cool so they have since restored some of this as is one of his trademarks carpenter names a couple of minor characters after fellow sci-fi and horror directors cronenberg and romero oh okay yeah Mm mm-hmm the final credit of the film is a reference to a strip club and the dancers across the river in St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> oh my gosh. And finally, Kurt's long hair and eye patch and Captain Ron inspired much speculation that he had made that character an incredibly drunken version of Snake Plissken. I believe it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Snake Plissken's retirement plan is Captain Ron. Snake Plissken if he'd been Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> oh, that he's retired from that life and goes to be a boat captain. Mm-hmm. It's the same person. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same person. Mm-hmm. And that is it for Escape from New York. Wow. It's a hell of a movie. That movie this movie's awesome. I, mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed this. So as with all of our movies, we have to come up with a special rating system. Of course, all ratings are out of five of whatever we decide, with half ratings being allowed. What is our rating system going to be for this movie? Like car chandeliers. Eye patches. I eye patches. Eye patches is good. Go fires, gliders. I like I like eye patches. Mm, snake Pluskin eye patches. Eye patches. It stands up so well. It does. And it's so. It's honestly more poignant now than when I saw it before. Like it's so good that even though it is relevant to today's climate, it's not that depressing. No, no, it's, it's just so good. There are chords that it hits. It's like oh, oh no, mm-hmm. wow. I'm gonna go four and a half. Four and a half eye patches. Okay. Not perfect because there's a few things here and there that I was like, we can make this better. But again, if you do too much to this movie, it makes it boring. This movie is so tight and adding too much just would not make it work. Kristen, how many eye patches are you going to give this movie? Hmm. I really like this movie. It's so good. I have very few complaints about it. And even the complaints aren't, you know, like, Sure, maybe some more dialogue or an extra scene here or there for backstory, but these are more additions mm-hmm. than what is like truly lacking from the movie. And he just has such majestic hair and fantastic pants. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the 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 scenes. I, I we didn't talk about it. I didn't bring it up when we talked about directing, but the scene where they're driving down Broadway and all the people are throwing bricks. Oh, yeah. it's so at good. The car is such a good scene. It is very good. That yeah. one's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have I think I have to give it four out of five eye patches. I just really enjoyed this film. I'm also gonna go four out of five. It's it's so fun. If I was slipping through the TV and it was on, I'd have to stop to like be like, where are we at? I gotta see what's going on. Yeah, I'd just like you know, I'd like more agency for the ladies. A little bit um, more. 
you know, mm-hmm. you know, just a cup, like you know, the one one couple of additions softens some language. It's not great because it's not great. Uh, some of that stuff, but other than that, like the story's amazing. Yeah, and I I can't, I really can't wait for us to. I can't wait to watch LA now. Well, I don't think we're gonna have to wait that long. We're not saying goodbye like we normally do. We have another movie to go watch. Yeah, and Kristen's gonna join us for that movie. So stick around, and we're going to talk about Escape from L.A. Yay! Woo-woo! All right, we're back, and we have just watched Escape from L.A. Snake Plissken is once again called in by the United States government to recover a potential doomsday device from Los Angeles, now an autonomous island where undesirables are deported. Ooh-wee! And we are still here with our amazing guest, the lovely Kristen Devine from the Role to Play Network, from Powered by the Players, and from Christmas Tide, Ohio! Hi! I'm so glad I could stay and talk about this amazing second movie. Yes, though, I, I did have to send you uh, a text regarding this movie. A <laughs> <sighs> change of the pants is a big deal, Diana. <laughs> We loved the pants so much because they're ama- they're really good pants. Yeah. Such good pants. I would get those leggings in a minute. I totally mm-hmm. would. And they take them away in like the first 20 minutes. They do. <sighs> now, his his subsequent outfit is still very attractive and it's doing a lot for him. I mean, the pleather leather thing head to toe, I, it's a decent replacement, but still it wasn't the original pants. He needed, he still needed that like, homage to camo going on yes in the butt area for sure (laughs) like he just needed it we needed it we needed it he needed like a vest or something at least we introduced him with that fair fair he still had it when they when we met him otherwise i would i would have been offended i wouldn't have known who he was (laughs) but but which does beg the question does he wash those clothes (laughs) no He he gets rained on yeah that's how they get that's how they get washed. Yeah. He's like Jim Morrison who never washed his stage outfit. I don't think Snake does laundry. <laughs> Snake is so much better than Jim Morrison. Mm. Facts. Facts. I was just Ooh. comparing clothes and outfit changes. Fair. <laughs> clothes and also hair. The, oh, the yeah. Hair, a little hair, bit of the hair. Sure. Okay. Good point. Mm-hmm. Good point. So this movie, it's a movie. Facts. <laughs> it's a fact. Here's the thing. This is not the worst thing I've ever seen. Also true. I've watched no. worse movies for this show. Also I've watched true. more bonkers movies for this show. Every scene in this movie, I felt like we either made this movie seven years too late or seven years too early. Like this movie should have come out in the late 80s or the mid 2000s. Yeah. Because either you wouldn't have had the question of using CGI. Mm hmm. Or you would have had the technical capabilities to pull off what you wanted to pull off. I mean, sometimes bad CGI is fun. That's true, but not when they're not when you're trying to do it in earnest. Mm -hmm. True that this was this was not the sweet spot for bad CGI. Bad CGI when it's stylized or when it's sort of cartoonish. And I say this with something like a Sin City, where that is not bad CGI but it is very intentionally stylized CGI mm-hmm. to create an effect in an environment. Okay. And there are moments where they do that here. Like the surfing scene, if every scene like that had felt like that and been that much of a cartoon, mm-hmm. I could have gone along with it. Yeah. 
But then there are also scenes where it's just bad computer graphics because they can't get the effect they want practically. Yeah, I mean, I can get over the bad CGI because the movie's bad. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bad, it's a bad movie. It's the same movie. That's well, and the thing is, it's a it's a bad version of a movie that's pretty good. (laughs) Exactly. Escape from New York is great. I, I guess. Here's the problem with this movie. And okay, I also have to admit, I keep wanting to say Snape. I I, I keep wanting to say Snape plus What a different movie. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Mr. President. Exactly. I keep wanting to say that Alan Rickman, also amazing. Mm -hmm. But what has Snape been doing all this time? Crime. Crime. That's fine. I need to see some of that crime. Yes. We should have seen him get picked up. More mm-hmm. of the movie should have been about that whole process. Them picking him up, him having more of a choice in the matter, because mm-hmm. it's the exact same scenario, just made more hokey. Yeah. And it's dumber. It's dumber. Like, I, I like the, the making fun of Hollywood in LA. That's all great. I'm here for that all the time. For sure. And it's campy, which I'm also here for. But it's not like we land in L.A. and we're in this funhouse mirror version of L.A. now, which also would have been really cool. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. The original movie has a really fine, sharp edge yeah. that this movie did not get. He's got the same elements of satire mm-hmm. and like really on the nose, direct examinations of the society they're in. Mm-hmm. And that's all on point. But there's no fine tuning of that, especially in the characters. The characters in the first movie feel so fleshed out and real. They do. And this one, they're just caricatures of that film. Mm-hmm. It's like Steve Buscemi. It's like, oh, hi, Cabby. Yeah. Slash Harry Dean Stanton. Pla- plus, yeah, brain. Yeah. 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 He's Cabby it's, and brain yeah. in one character, but he's the broad strokes of it. And even Steve Buscemi giving a kind of nuanced performance is still a cartoon character mm-hmm. when he could be so much more interesting, like those other two characters were. Yeah. And Cuervo Jones, which, great, I'm sorry, great name. <laughs> yes. So that's a great name. I do love Cuervo Jones. Yeah. Is just... It's pointless and toothless. Meh. Mm-hmm. Like, what's... You could take that character entirely out of this movie and it prob- it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't care. He's just plot. Yeah. I don't in fact, yeah. most everybody in this movie, other than Snake, is just a plot point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they literally could have just made it that the daughter is lost and they're trying to find her. And that would have been yeah. made more sense. Like she ran away. She made sure she landed in the island of L.A. And now we're trying to find her there. That's your job. Mm-hmm. Like nobody cares about trying to kill her or, or nothing. Nobody's holding her for ransom or anything. But she's got shit she shouldn't have. We need to get her back. Right. That's it. Get rid of everything else and just meet interesting weirdos because this island has devolved into a fun house. Okay. Yeah. And the the way they set up the first 10 minutes of this movie, you start in and you're like, oh, shit. After the devastation, the Constitution is amended and the newly elected president accepts a lifetime term of office. The country's capital is relocated from Washington, D.C. to the president's hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia. Los Angeles Island is declared no longer part of the United States and becomes the deportation point for all people found undesirable or unfit to live in the new moral America. 
the United States police force, like an army, is encamped along the shoreline, making any escape from L.A. impossible. Like, yeah. we thought the first movie was timely in its messaging. Oh, yeah. When you find I out know. the president is an evangelical leader living in Lynchburg, Virginia. <laughs> and yeah. accepted a lifetime term. Right. I'm like, I'm like, so this is just now. This is just yeah. what's... It yeah. is. This is just what's going to happen now. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I... I do wonder, because this is a major studio picture, if Carpenter had those ideas throughout the making of this script, and it got hacked to pieces. I'm not saying John Carpenter isn't capable of ruining a movie. He's not a perfect sure. director. No. <laughs> but to me, it feels like if you just gave John Carpenter this script back in the 80s and let him make it, hmm. it would be just as incisive and cutting as it was before. Mm -hmm. And I feel like somehow when it got to the studio level, they went, well, this isn't going to make sense. You're going to have to explain that and you're going to have to show them this. And then it, we just got the dumbest version of what he had in mind. Maybe. That's probably true. But they probably also went, oh, we've got all these known people. They need to get more screen time. That was definitely a thing. We have a lot more known people in this film. Mm -hmm. So we've got that happening. We've got this technology. We got to use it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're going to do an action film, you got to use it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. That's true. I bet using the CGI was the whole reason that the surf scene was even written. Like, it seems like the scene where they go in for like the plastic surgery, not only was it dark, the way I like that he did some of the scenes in the first movie where you could feel like, oh, this person enjoys and directs horror films. Yes. But it also was a little campy. And I was yes. like, yes, I'm here yes. for campy horror, Hollywood, yes. plastic surgery. That does not feel like it came from the same brain as someone who's like, let him surf out of this place. Like, exactly. <laughs> what? I literally said what out loud when that scene happened. I'm just what? like, they're literally sitting there waiting for a tsunami. <laughs> you don't surf a tsunami. Like, no. it's like, that's no. Yeah. But like, apparently Peter Fonda does, which I'm also here for. Well, like, I, sure. I'm okay with that scene okay. on paper. <laughs> its execution is flawed. Yeah. Well, because yeah. the thing is, I was like, it's funny watching this movie where you watch all the scenes and you go. God, this is bad. God, this is bad. But then when you think about it as a story, it's like, that's actually a cool story element. Sure. That's a cool thing to throw in here. Mm -hmm. LA's having constant earthquakes, mm -hmm. which it's not like it wasn't a place that had a lot of earthquakes to begin with, but now it's mm -hmm. like all the time. And those massive earthquakes are going to cause huge tidal waves. Okay. And so surfers who get thrown in there as undesirables are going to be like, yo, dude, let's ride oh, the fucking wave. It should have been point break, though. Yeah, that's not that far-fetched. So what should what you should have done was figure out a night shot and just filmed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, somehow. Like, if we if we have a Cameron on yeah. the set for this damn thing, and we put him in. Hey, the tank was built, was in the process of being built. Yeah. This is 96. <laughs> put, put him in the Jim Cameron Titanic tank and have him surf on those waves. They were building it. <laughs> building it. Diana it's just, knows. It's Diana, just Diana knows. <laughs> it's just a shame because again if you would made this about seven or eight years later you'd have had enough technology in place where you could have made it look pretty good mm -hmm. 
And then we probably wouldn't have these kind of complaints about it. Yeah, so maybe we have to forgive it a little bit, right? Because they did the best they could with the tech at the time. We'll get into it. I don't know that we necessarily need to forgive it, but it... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, because my problem is mostly with the story. Fair. Because it, it hmm. feels like it's the exact same. It's just not as good. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a di- even... It's a diluted yeah. version of the first one. Yes. It, it just is. Yes, when he wins the basketball and they all start, they all get quiet, the crowd gets quiet, and then they start chanting Snake. I was like, that's literally what happened in the first movie, only he was fighting, not making baskets. Yeah. When when does Snake learn to play basketball? I need to know the origin story of this. Who taught him? When did he practice? <laughs> was he playing basketball when they picked him up? Like, right. I, where's that cut scene? <laughs> yes. I need a Top Gun volleyball-esque scene yes. of Snake playing basketball. In That's those pants. In those original in the pants. pants. Shirtless. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, we'll get we'll get through some of the fine details and we'll see whether we think, you know, possibly it's the studio, possibly it's just a, a failed collaboration. Fair. The budget for this film was $50 million. 15? 50. 50. Yeah, that, that, that's... Okay. For a blockbuster action movie that was like at this point fully a cult classic and they were banking on that to market it. Because I remember this being I heavily remember the marketing marketed. for this. I do. It grossed twenty five million five hundred thousand dollars. Not even oh, it didn't even make, break even. No. Not even close. This firmly put John Carpenter back into the the secluded horror world and then mm. you know pretty soon after this is he retires. For making oh, wow. movies. And critics lambasted the film for being too violent, which whatever. No. It's mid-90s. This is not it's too It's that violent. mid-90s bullshit reaction to the 80s action movies. This is not yeah. too violent at no. all. But also too mm-hmm. similar to the original. That's very, very fair. Agreed. <sighs> so the writing. We have John Carpenter, who gets previous credit for the original and then writing on this film. Nick Castle, who also developed the characters for the original film. Then Deborah Hill, Carpenter's longtime producer. Um, she also co-wrote Halloween, The Fog, and Halloween 2. Yeah. And then Kurt Russell gets writing credit on this movie. Now, per John Carpenter, Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell's contribution was the ending. Okay. The, okay. the destruction of the electricity. Yeah. And having the world have to start over was Kurt Russell's biggest contribution to the script. Okay. And I get bringing him on as a as a screenwriter or at least having him in the process and then, you know, needing to credit him because mm-hmm. Kurt was one of the biggest forces angling to get this movie made. Like, I don't think this movie would have gotten made if Kurt wasn't behind it because this film got stuck in development hell for 10 years. They had a script commission in 85. Wow. That makes sense. I mean, like the other one was very successful. People loved it. Mm-hmm. It's Kurt's favorite movie that he's ever made. Of course he wants to do another one. Of course they mm-hmm. want to make another one. That's also a standard of the 80s, 90s, and today. <laughs> yep, sequels. And one of the interesting things is I think John Carpenter wasn't really interested. That makes total sense too. That has some historical perspective because Carpenter hates sequels. And part of that was getting burned on Halloween 2. That when he made Halloween 2, it was such a harder process. There were so many more eyes on it. And Mm -hmm. he hated the experience of making it. And so that makes total sense. 
In fact, he wrote Halloween 2, but he chose not to direct it because he was like, I don't want to do this again. Like, I made Halloween. I'm happy with it. Hmm. I'm happy with this product and I want to do the next thing. So this is the only sequel John Carpenter ever directs. Okay. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Wasn't... Wasn't Halloween the way that it ended? I almost said spoiler. And then I was like, if you haven't seen Halloween by now, um, the way it ended is pretty, it could could have been a standalone, sure. right? It had that creepy type ending. It could have been a standalone. So it makes sense that, you know, the pressure would be on then to make a fantastic sequel to that. Sure. Yeah, but he he did not want to do it. He wrote Halloween 2 and then immediately went and made The Fog. Mm-hmm. I do totally get that. Yeah. Like, I remember myself, like, it took me a while to figure out, like, even in the theater, like, I don't want to do the same thing over and over and over again. I get, mm-hmm. I get old. I did that in the theater. I was like, I love the process of the creating and the figuring out. But, like, once we have opening night, I don't care anymore. I'm like, can I do sure. something new now? Mm-hmm. I need a new challenge. I need a new story. I need a new thing. Yeah. Like, I love all these people. Don't want to do the same thing right. again. Like we accomplish this next. Let's go. I'm mm-hmm. good. Can I hand this off to somebody now? Right. Yeah. And so I think Kurt is the biggest reason that this movie got pushed forward. That's um, fair. Yeah. Because he kept persisting on it. He desperately wanted to play Snake Plissken again. He loves that character. And he eventually convinced Carpenter and Deborah Hill that, you know, let's do it. Let's be serious and work on it. And then in January 17th, 1994, L.A. experienced a massive earthquake and they were spurred to talk about environmental disaster, drive by shootings, how dark L.A. had gotten. OK. And that's when they started to come up with the script, because the original sequel that they had commissioned for somebody else to write, Carpenter was like, this is too light and campy. Like, oh. I don't want we got to go dark if we're going to do it. Mm. And they found an ally with Paramount Pictures to make a dark sequel unfortunately it's not that dark it's not that dark and i think part of it is being with paramount having studio execs look over your shoulder on movies like this when carpenters doesn't make movies that do that i think that's a huge problem Hmm. like he's used to working with a nothing budget so nobody Mm -hmm. gives a shit about what he does so it's lower pressure yeah and it's just he can make whatever movie he wants to make. Mm-hmm. Okay, my other question is, where was Kurt Russell in his career? Because huh. he's had several different careers. Because I could also see that be part of the pressure of Kurt needing a win. Sure. Going to IMDb momentarily. Okay. <laughs> because Yeah, because that can add another element to why he's pushing to do the movie, why he's pushing for story stuff while mm-hmm. certain things are getting, like, he clearly has a lot more say because this means a lot more to him. He's definitely a bigger right. star than he was when the first one was done. So that does change the dynamic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't do the movie without him. No. And that's going to that's that can affect a production. We've seen it happen on other things for sure. So, no. Oh, OK. Um, I'm totally wrong. Cool. <laughs> good theory, though, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually... Like the tail end of a pretty good run for him. Oh, okay. Because in 93, we have Tombstone. Oh, geez. 94, we have Stargate. (laughs) And in 96, we have Executive Decision. I've seen none of those. (gasps) You haven't seen Tombstone? I've seen bits of it. I know it's Tim's like favorite movie. I know. It's really Val Kilmer's a star, but Kurt Russell's amazing. So, yeah. Okay, sorry. Not not this podcast, not this episode, I mean. Oh, it's definitely <laughs> this podcast. Not this episode though. 
But he kind of goes to movie jail after this. Okay. Because <laughs> he has breakdown. I mean, he has some good roles. He has breakdown 3,000 miles to Graceland. But he from 98 to 2001, he doesn't have a movie. Because he does breakdown Ooh. and soldier. And then he's kind of gone for a while. Uh-huh. Which could be like kid or relationship stuff too. Yeah, they, yeah. Wyatt Russell showed up. That could be part of it. Uh, but he has 3,000 miles to Graceland, Vanilla Sky, Dark Blue. And then he does Miracle, which again boosted him. Oh, yeah. But like, Kurosawa's one of those guys where you're like, oh, well, he kind of went to movie channel. It's like, no, he just, it's like every few years, he just doesn't have something and then comes back again. So anyway, writing, we're not big fans. Nope. Mm-mm. It's just every, every single thing that could be on the nose from this movie, they decided to do. Yeah, it's not, it's not great. <laughs> I don't love it. Between Cuervo Jones and Hershey LaPalmas. Oh, that made me not happy. They, they, no, that and was, that and here's what here's what sucks the most about that is that Pam Greer is doing fucking awesome with that role. Pam she really awesome. is. But the thing is, they didn't need to pitch her voice down. Nope. They didn't need to do any of that shit. They could have just let Pam Greer be badass Pam fucking Greer. Yep. And then be like, yeah, I'm a trans woman. What the fuck of it? Like they, they could have just done that. Yeah. They just they made mm-hmm. it gross yep. and exploitive. The only other thing is that Carpenter used Seven Samurai as a huge point of inspiration for this film. I don't know. How? 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 Even I've never even seen that, and I know. How? <laughs> How? I've seen, no. I've seen tons of movies that have been inspired by Seven Samurai. I'm like, okay, not this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> requires a group of people. That is the weirdest. I cannot link that inspiration. I, I don't. And that was John Carpenter's inspiration? That's what he says. Can we get John on the phone? Like, I, I have to know why. How is this he inspiration? He might have been. <laughs> you know what? He's he's doing awesome. He's Go overseeing remakes of his movies. They're going to remake the thing, apparently. Are they remakes are they? or reimaginings? I don't know. Um, but, you know, he's he's involved with all that stuff. He's involved with the Halloween franchise. He's making all the, the synth oh. music for it all because he made all the music originally. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Good for him. He's living his best life, you know? I like a lot of what he does. I just am confused about that inspiration. Yes. I think he was confused about <laughs> this a, whole movie. It's <laughs> a confusing That's note. fair. It is. I think Kurt Russell knew what the fuck he wanted to do, and everybody else was like, nah. I don't know. Nah. Mm-hmm. And I love Kurt, but I'm pretty sure you need John Carpenter to know what's going on on this one. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of John Carpenter, our director, it is John Carpenter again. How do we feel about the directing of this movie? I mean, the writing sucks, so the direction is just meh. He's trying to he's he, he's doing what he can, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's, Again, it's that CGI shit. It, yeah, it's it, it's one of yeah. those things where it's like if it was done a couple of times and laughable, it would just be like, okay, this is a fun relic from 1996. Like he cl- we 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 made an effort and we tried, and oh well. But it's happened mm-hmm. so often in the damn movie. He clearly doesn't know what to do with it. Well, I, I don't I don't think that he does. No. So here's what happened. They hired Buena Vista visual effects to do this stuff. And I guess this is somebody he'd probably worked with a lot. They'd never used computer graphics before. Oh, and they did not have the resources to render them correctly. So he got sold a bill of goods. Cut it from your movie. OK, I <laughs> you cut it from your movie. Just to create one underwater sequence, it took over 150 special effects. Was that the submarine? When yeah. When he was coming into... Yeah. yeah. Which was cool. 
make some room was cool but no <laughs> yeah oh yeah no submarine complaints like, here unnecessary but it looks like a bad made for tv movie mm-hmm. yeah it really drags you out of the movie because you got big name stars and big name b stars to be in this mm-hmm. movie so there's like instant star power there yeah and camp power with somebody like a bruce campbell showing up but then you throw these bad effects on top of it it's like why are they all in this cheap ass movie and it's just disappointing. I got paid. That's why they're there. But yeah, John, yeah. for whatever reason, the studio they went with when they got it back, they could not render them. Wow. They filmed, again, almost entirely at night, just like they did for the first one. Production mm-hmm. went 70 days without a daytime shoot, which has got to be hell to try and deal with. Yeah. But they filmed the whole movie almost entirely on the Paramount backlot. You can tell. <laughs> You could, like, <laughs> like, I was just like, that's a backlot. That's a backlot. That's, I was like, this yeah. is all set. Uh, Especially their fake Disneyland. I'm just like, this is just a lot. And oh, like, let's man. shove it all in, shove it all as I close know. as possible. And I'm like, yep. That's there's there's so many yeah. missed opportunities. The Happy Kingdom could have been so much more fun. The Coliseum mm-hmm. could have been so much more fun. Coliseum was pretty cool, though. It was cool conceptually. Yes. But, but executed. Used. Not good. Poorly used. Mm-hmm. And like, there's so many LA landmarks that they're clearly trying to hit, but they're doing it in such a boring way. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, take us on a tour of Los Angeles, my dude. Like, well, they had it set up with the guy who had the tours with the uh, Steve Buscemi's character. Uh, Eddie should have been yeah. there so much more. He should have become like forced Agreed. to be a sidekick. Yep, and then betray him. Yeah, like I'm fine. fine with that turn. Right, but. But there's, mm-hmm. it takes so long to get to him in this movie. Yeah. We're, ha- we're fully halfway through the movie before we even meet his character. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out he's yeah. one of the most important characters in the movie. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Not good. No, thank you. And their meeting felt choppy because it was the second time they met that he shoots him in the chest with those. Because mm-hmm, he gets him in the car. But it's only like the second time. I really would have liked to have seen them have... I mean, obviously, Snake doesn't get buddy-buddy with anyone, but I really would have liked to have seen Steve Buscemi's character put in more of that, like, sidekick mm-hmm. effort, and then the betrayal could have meant something, where it was like, well, this is the second time I've seen you. I hadn't even made a decision about what I thought of you yeah. yet. So the betrayal doesn't really mean a we whole lot. We shouldn't have seen betrayal from him at that point. It right. could have been him. It should have been later. Mm-hmm. Right. It should have been a switch on the, on the audience. Uh, they played their hand too early. It was... All not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence G. Paul, the production designer, used 29,000 pounds of rubble to create Sunset Boulevard, Whoa. which is one of the better sequences in the movie. It is. Because Agreed. it feels real. True. <laughs> one sequence of that used 200 crashed cars because that that feels like when they have to go through Times Square and they're getting mm-hmm. all this shit. Th- like, mm-hmm. that scene felt the damn same. That scene yeah. also reminded me of that shot in The Walking Dead when he's walking up the highway that's been abandoned with all the cars. Oh, yes. In the first mm-hmm. episode. The I pilot. guarantee you they stole that. Oh, I'm sure. Many people have. Yeah, but, uh, that yeah, feel. That feeling yeah. of just, like, that eerie, like, this mm-hmm. is dead. This is cool. Everything that was production yeah. designed felt awesome. And yes. Everything that they just decided we got to throw effects at it just felt so cheap. Mm-hmm. And it just sucks. It drags the whole movie down. Carpenter later reflected on the film 
take this how you will. Escape from L.A. is better than the first movie. Ten times better. No. It's got more to it. It's more mature. It's got a lot more to it. I think some people didn't like it because they felt it was a remake, not a sequel. You never know why a movie's going to make it or not. So I like this. He thinks it's better, but he doesn't blame anybody who hated it. Uh I mean, that's just a mature artist. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, I think we had a better picture, but it didn't come out that way. So, oh, well. Yeah, but like when you make something and you put it out in the world, you just have to accept the fact that there's going to be people who love it because you touched it. And there's also going to be a group of people who hate it because you touched it. And you just have to be okay. Mm -hmm. You just have to be okay with your contribution. Like you can't control anything else. Correct. And as he said, people didn't want to see Escape that time, but they really didn't want to see the thing when it came out. Fair. Hmm. So, yeah, he's like. This may not be my masterpiece, but I had the same damn thing happen to me with one of my best films. So, like, I don't know what to tell yeah, you. I mean, it's almost 25 years later and we're watching it, so. Yeah, true. I mean, we didn't like it, but there you go. I, <laughs> but we're watching it. But we're we talking are, about it. So that's and, and it's a testament to that first movie. It mm-hmm. makes you want to watch another one. It's true. Yes. But this just is not enough for what it should be. The only other fun note is that the last 20 minutes of the film happen effectively in real time. Yeah. Wow. Kinda. The countdown clock on this one is actually one of the cooler aspects because in Escape from New York, we have a longer span of time yes. that he has. Mm-hmm. Putting 10 hours on the clock mm-hmm. ratchets the tension up so much higher. Yeah, it does. It doesn't deliver through the movie, but having that expectation there, like in the first 10 minutes of the movie, I'm like, whoa, let, I'm in, let's go. And yeah. then it just, you know, dies yes and that's the problem but like the setup the again the intro to this movie is fan-fucking-tastic oh i don't think the intro of the movie is good oh no no because i feel like we just got we just got right into the exact same film immediately instead of being like what's snake been doing right that's where we should have spent time i think we as an audience Mm -hmm. should have gotten that it's been this long since we saw the last movie we should have gotten that mm-hmm. like not I don't need like 45 minutes of that, but give me 20 minutes of that. Have Snake have more of a stake in choosing to do this. You know, don't just like infect him. But Snake wouldn't choose to do anything. This is Snake fucking Pliskin. Not necessarily. No, <laughs> he's not a hero. <laughs> no, he's not a hero. That's one of the best things about him. But what has happened in the last years crime right crime and murder but i want a crime montage no i also want a crime montage montage. with a little bit of shirtless basketball shirtless basketball (laughs) yes but but i do see how in unless i'm remembering correctly they don't talk about his background right they just drop snake in he's kind of mysterious but everybody knows him and i think they were trying to keep that theme yeah which I'm fine with, but then, like, talk about or show a few of his big crimes since New York. Because people... Right. Why does everyone know him? I can fix it. Okay, fix it. Fix okay, the, the reporter... Oh, go ahead. The reporter is there saying the U.S. is most notorious criminal. Uh-huh. Have a full news report. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two-minute clip report of Snake doing various shit. Show what went down in Cleveland mm-hmm. in a clip. Because that keeps the fair, same okay, kind fair. of mystery. We don't need this whole explanation okay. of what's going on, but we do need to see that, you know, he's still been He's still been snake this yeah. whole time. Okay, yes, I I, I yeah. can accept that maybe a little longer than two minutes, 
but that is an appropriate way to be like, here are his other famous crimes that he's done over the years. This is the footage of us catching him here. We just caught him now. We are transporting him to LA. Because they they kind of do that, but you're not paying attention because that whole time you're looking at the undesirables being delivered into (laughs) LA. Being, oh yeah, that whole, oh, that. Which also should have been a way bigger part of this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest problems is L.A. immediately devolves back into what New York was. Mm-hmm. But L.A. is not the same as New York. The setup for this movie is not, this is a prison colony. Right. The setup for this movie is, everyone who we consider an enemy of America is here. Yeah, and that is also what makes us very, very relevant to 2020 <laughs> and creepy AF. Yes. Yeah. Like, where would they send me today? It wouldn't be LA. It wouldn't be LA. But like Cuervo Jones can be a bad guy, but then Utopia needs to represent the actual desire for things to change. And she's never given that agency. No. No, she's not. She's just hot, dumb, rich girl. Yeah. Yes. That's that's all she's written to be. Yes. When she should have been way more Patty Hearst. And that actress is worth way more than that role Mm -hmm. for sure (laughs) we can talk about her in a moment yeah speaking of cast though yeah first we get kurt russell as snake plissken what do we think of kurt in this movie took away his hot pants i know but hey (laughs) want to hear a fun fact he kept all of his clothes from escape from new york (gasps) and was amazed and proud that he still still fit fit into them so those Those are are the original original pants and shirt from the movie (laughs) Wow. 17 years later. Okay, that is, I mean, I would brag about that as well. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, Michael Keaton was bragging up and down the street when he did Birdman. That costume, same exact measurements from Batman 1989. Thank you. (laughs) And I was just like, I would brag about that shit all day. Yep. Russell was like, look at me. Ain't no shame. I fucking did it. Ain't no shame. Every interview, I'd bring bring it up. up Mm -hmm. all the time, too. I did all my own stunts. Whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember Cameron Diaz would say that, too. Like, her proudest word. Best burp. I do my own stunts. I do my own burp. Yep. <laughs> You're proud of that. It's amazing. You own, you own that. that. That's amazing. Love that. So he still has the pants. That's the most important thing. I needed to know the status of the pants. <laughs> I think he still still has the pants. Oh, you know he does. He's getting buried in those. Uh, they better yes. show up in the Santa Chronicles too. They better. <laughs> Santa snake. Hot Santa. Uh, <laughs> the new costume that he got was inspired by the stealth bomber which was a big deal at the time. Okay. And costume designer Robin Bush said, quote, we actually invented a fabric. Oh. So. For Snake. Take that for what you will. All right. Okay. I mean, he's still grumpy Snake. He's great. He I is. I love his gruff voice that he uses for this role. It's very, it's, it's just not Kurt Russell, which is what's enjoyable about it. Yeah. His eye patch was mm-hmm. too shiny, though. It was too <laughs> brand new. Oh, like he had it, like it wasn't the same yeah, eye patch, like shiny. he had purchased a new one. I will say that outfit, I'm like, uh, I don't like this. And then he throws the duster on, and I was like, okay. Yeah, once he throws on the duster, yeah. it's just mm. like, I mean, okay, now you have a complete look. But then they take it away yes. halfway through the movie. Then they take, yeah, yeah he's got to show his yeah. arms. Yeah, fair. Which, and then his butt. You know that's why. The arms, arms and the, the butt. butt. He worked for those <laughs> things. The duster hid them. Not I mean, okay. It's an intimidating look, sure. It's an ensemble. It's a whole mm-hmm. thing. I'm here for it. Yeah. But then, hello. 
One of the reasons the eye patch might be shiny, he was wearing an eye patch that was slightly transparent oh. to avoid the depth perception problems and headaches that he got while making the first movie. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. At 45, he worked out for several months to get back into shape to play Snake Plissken. Did it. And mm-hmm. between all of his shots, he practiced basketball extensively. All of those basketball shots are Kurt fucking <gasps> Russell, including the full court shot. <gasps> no. That's awesome. I'm so <laughs> proud of him. That's adorable. Wow. I mean, now I like that scene a little more. Now <laughs> that I know that. It's less horrible. He did it. It's less horrible. It's a dumb premise. It's dumb, but... but he did make those fucking shots. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> I want to know how many takes it took for the full court shot. How many tries? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I need to know. I feel like he nailed it in one, you know? No. Let's go with that. We don't have we don't have I'm any say evidence it's otherwise. Less than ten. Yeah. Which is still impressive okay. as hell. And and he probably made like three of them. Okay. Because they had to, they just had to get coverage. Fair. It's impressive anyway. as hell. As hell. <laughs> whatever, whatever the number yeah. is, it's impressive. Mm-hmm. Kurt Russell is Snake Plissken. We're done with that. Yep. He's great. Yep. Fair. Steve Buscemi as Map to the Stars Eddie. Before this, he was in New York Stories, Tales from the Dark Side, King of New York, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Reservoir Dogs, Rising Sun, The Hudsucker Proxy, Pulp Fiction, Airheads, Living in Oblivion, Billy Madison, Dead Man, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Desperado, and Fargo. After this, Con Air, The Big Lebowski, The Wedding Singer, Armageddon, Ghost World, Monster Inc., The Laramie Project, Mr. Deed, Spy Kids 2, Spy Kids 3D Game Over, Coffee and Cigarettes, Big Fish, Romance and Cigarettes, Art School Confidential, The Sopranos, The Messenger, Youth and Revolt, Grown Ups, On the Road, Hotel Transylvania, 30 Rock, The Incredible Wonderstone, Monsters University, Grown Ups 2, Time Out of Mind, The Cobbler, Boardwalk Empire, Horace and Pete, The Boss Baby, Transformers, The Last Night, The Death of Stalin, and Miracle Workers. What do we think of Steve Buscemi in this film? just so overrated (laughs) i mean that list is so impressive (laughs) he's so talented i'm always happy when he's when he shows up and he is wasted in this movie yes Mm -hmm. not yeah i didn't not by any of his own fault Mm -hmm. it's not at all his fault i love him and i always forget he was in airheads Always. (laughs) always <laughs> here's the thing is we saw him play a very similar character to this in fargo but in fargo he's like a thousand times more complex and interesting he because they gave him such. time to breathe into the character yeah they wrote him that way yeah the writing is bad it's yeah. not good it's not steve he's a treasure <laughs> yeah i feel like i didn't really like him that much in this movie but i do not think it was his fault at all like, I, I just don't. It could have been almost anyone that could have played that role. Yeah. So when you say, like, he was wasted, that's what it makes me think of. It's like, you could have, unless you were going to really let him be him or or give him more spotlight. He's playing a cartoon character. And yeah. Steve Buscemi's masterstroke is being a cartoon character and then layering, like, five layers of complexity on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's what makes him so amazing in, like, Reservoir Dogs and Fargo. And even Desperado, mm-hmm. where he's in it for like five minutes, there's layers yeah. to that character. Yeah. And in this one, he doesn't get any time to do that. Nope. Okay. It's disappointing. He was also very good in Boardwalk Empire. Yes. But to be fair, Bashemi pretty much only took the role to film his directing debut, Trees Lounge. Okay. So. Make that yeah, money. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Make that money. 
So fun fact here, the actor who played Cuervo Jones Mm -hmm. has like no other big credits. Like I didn't even list him here. Oh, okay. So we can talk about him, but he's such a nothing burger of a character anyway. Yeah, he really is. I mean, all I could do is conjecture about who else we could have put in that role to make it better. I'm going to start with Benjamin Bratt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. He's so much more attractive too. (laughs) Yeah. There was somebody. Oh, I got so much Raul Julia vibes from this guy. And if Raul Julio was still around, my God, oh, he would have just I chewed up the scenery. About him. He is good. He was amazing. I have no idea where Jimmy Smits was in his career during this oh, time. Oh, 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 but that's another. Jimmy Smits is Cuervo Jones, please. If we're going to go super campy and super LA, Jimmy Smits would have been fun. He would have been fun. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes. Yeah. He would. He just would have, like, dove into the role which is what you needed this guy like it's already badly written and then this guy feels like he's just shoveling surface level dirt Mm -hmm. i feel like those actors we mentioned could have also made the role a little more serious like i would have liked to have either had this character lean more into the campiness if that's where the movie was going one way or the other or i need to believe that they are really running this operation and they're you know what I mean? Like, this is, I just need to believe that more. Or it needs to be more Even campy. Even if they're campy, they still need to be convincing revolutionaries. Yes. Like, it could turn out yeah. that when we meet him, he's just a complete, total dick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's a he's a Hans Gruber character who's just in it for taking, <laughs> taking control of the money. Yes. But yeah. he needs to be convincing as a fucking revolutionary trying to rally these people. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's not ever. Mm-mm. Nope. Peter Fonda as Pipeline. (laughs) Peter Fonda is a legend. Yeah. Before this, The Victors, Lilith, The Young Lovers, The Wild Angels, The Trip, Easy Rider, The Hired Hand, The Last Movie, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, Future World, the sequel to the original Westworld, The Cannonball Run, Deadfall, Love and a 45. After this, Yuli's Gold, The Limey, South of Heaven, West of Hell, Thomas and the Magic Railroad, because Yaki was in that movie. The Laramie okay. Project, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, mm. Ghost Rider, Wild Hogs, and the 2007 310 to You. How do we feel about stunt casting Peter Fonda in this movie? It was unexpected for him to be in that role, so I appreciated it. It's unexpected and yet also very expected that after you get past the shock of it being Peter Fonda, you're like, oh yeah, he would be a hippie surfer, dude. See, I don't have that context for Peter Fonda at uh, all. So for me, I was just like, oh, okay. I just think Easy Rider with him. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this makes fucking sense. Yeah, I've never seen that. So acid rain, dude. (laughs) It's a staging area for the big invasion. The whole town's going to be there except me. I'm staying right here, man. I'm ready for the big wave. It's going to be some eternal one. Take me there. What? Take me there. You're not doing so well, Snake. You need help. Here. Hey, hold on. Who shot you? Doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, you're right. I liked him. I thought he did the like old, true LA surfer guy slash vibe really well. Mm-hmm. It just it just felt like it was an old surfer guy, right? Like I believed it. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's someone I've seen on Venice Beach before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but then why isn't he in the movie more? Why isn't he cabby? Oh, why isn't he this movie's cabby? Because I know Eddie kind of fulfills the role too, but just like yeah, I mean. If you want somebody to be the comic relief, he should have shown, he should have just popped up more. Yeah, he mm-hmm. could have popped up more, but I don't know. I, I, I liked him when we saw him, <laughs> so 
We move on to another legend, Cliff Robertson, as the president. Before this, Cliff Robertson was in Picnic, Autumn Leaves, The Naked and the Dead, Gidget, PT-109, Sunday in New York, Masquerade, Charlie, Three Days at the Condor, 1976's Midway, Star 80, Falcon Crest, and Renaissance Man. But you may know him best for his roles after this in Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, and Spider-Man 3 as Uncle Ben Parker. Yeah. Yeah, it's Uncle Ben. <laughs> yeah. Just replay that same scene over and over and over again. Yes, that one heartbreaking scene. What do we think of Cliff Robertson in this movie? He's a dick. Oh, yeah. He's so... To be fair, his daughter is also awful, but he named her Utopia, so... He named her Utopia. He is pitch perfect in his tone I mean... of an evangelical leader. I mean, that's very true. That's fair. And he looks just like several of them. Yes, also true. Because I gotta give him credit. Out of all these characters who play pretty cartoony visions of them, he feels real. He does. Like, they tell him, hide under this chair, and he's hiding under the chair, but also, you're convinced that he's actually that scared under that table. Yes. Yes. And, like, coming out and then, like, going back to Sirius and be like, fuck it, I'll murder you if I have to to keep power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, he drops all facades when he's behind closed doors. Yes. And it's perfect. And his willingness to kill his daughter kind of sold it for me i appreciate that in a villain type like i want someone who if you set them up to be this level of bad i need to see and believe they're this level of bad and not in a mustache twirling way either. no it's in a cold calculating i don't care yeah she's not important to me no no not at all <laughs> clearly i named her utopia i clearly have no emotional ties to this child i also have no idea what that means so there you go yep <laughs> The president character was Kurt Russell's idea Mm. in the script. He based it off of Pat Robertson. Yep, that tracks. Uh Okay, sure. That guy's a tool. Oh, boy. Who could have been better? Donald Pleasance was very much considered to come back as the president, but he was not able to do so because he was declining in health. Yeah. And he passed away in 1995 before filming started. That's understandable. Yeah. Would this movie have been better or different having the president return? It depends. Is he still the same president? So I think he's the same president, but here's the angle that you could take with it, uh-huh. is that he has now reformed the country under this ideological thing. Okay. Back in New York, we had to do it this way, but now the country's changed and I've got to keep everybody on my side. So I'm going to pivot to this whole religious angle. But I don't know. Cliff Robertson does a really good job in this movie. He's, he's very good. I'm just trying to think how Donald. I think I like it better with a new president so that I don't bring any thoughts or emotions that I had about the last president and his brief interaction with Snake. I think I like that it's a, a new president. If they'd have just leaned in so much more to that political aspect in LA, it would have played that much better. Yeah, mm-hmm. because they just they bring it up and then they drop it yeah. as soon as we get on the yeah. Mm-hmm. Valeria Galino as Taslima. We have seen her before in Rain Man on this show. Mm. Also before this, she was in lots of European films: Big Top, Pee Wee, Hot Shots, Year of the Gun, Hot Shots Part Two, Clean Slate, Immortal Beloved, Leaving Las Vegas, and Four Rooms. And most recently, she was La Comtesse in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And is mostly oh, wow. stuck to doing European film. Wow. Okay. A weirdly written character, too. 
I mean, she's like the the chick in the diner who asked for a cigarette. In the she first is one. the chock full of nuts role. girl. Chuck but the problem nuts, yeah. is, is that then they keep her around for so long, mm-hmm. and then she gets killed. That it's kind of awkward. You feel like she's supposed to be a replacement for the Valerie Bertinelli character. Mm-hmm. Yes, but then she's not. Yeah. And then Hershey kind of comes in, and then you're like, I don't. Wh- which one? I guess it's just that. You're supposed to just keep guessing which one is he going to have a romantic attachment to, and it's none of them. Of course, Mm -hmm. because Snake doesn't care about people. Right. Well, maybe this is going to be the one that changes all of that. (laughs) Although, when when she dies, he has this moment, I thought he had this moment, where it looks like he feels bad. Yeah. And it might just be because he's not so, I mean, he's not evil. Right? He's just not a hero. He's jaded. He's jaded and he's not a hero. And so it doesn't mean that he likes seeing... Just because he's not a hero doesn't mean that he likes seeing people die. But I did kind of get this feeling that he was like... Sad about it. I don't know. Sad. Like a little bit sad. And so I was like, is that going to go somewhere? Well, no, of course it doesn't. (laughs) It was an odd tone. Yes. I, I think they were trying to set up that this character finally gets to Snake's heart in the matter mm-hmm. and sets up why in the end he decides to to be like no neither of you sides win mm-hmm. everything starts from scratch and i think that's sort of where they're going where it's like oh look somebody actually gave a shit and got to him and then they get yeah. killed because anybody that snake gets remotely close to gets killed right right but watching the movie you miss it because they're just kind of like rambling through dialogue to talk about it. And you're not really paying attention because there's so much other shit going on. Yeah. It's similar for me to the Steve Buscemi character where I could have been more emotionally invested in that relationship, or at least what that relationship brief relationship did to snake. If I had seen more of it, but it was just kind of like so fast, few scenes and then, or what felt like a few scenes. And then she dies. And I was like, well, I, I'm not even sure why he's so sad. He's such like this cold hearted guy. Like what was it about her? I didn't see that come through, but I'm not saying it's any fault of the actresses at all. No, <laughs> it's all the writing. It's all, it's all the, the writing. writing. <laughs> Stacy Keach as commander Malloy. I'm not going to go through all of Stacy Keach's credits, but you've seen him in movies before. Mm-hmm. He's in so many movies. So, so many. Okay. He feels like he's phony. <laughs> I know Stacy Keach is way more capable of doing great work than this. It's again, it goes back to me. It's against the writing. Yeah, the writing is so bad. But still, Stacy Keach has such this ability to choose scenery and has done it in so many things. He could have done it with this movie, uh, and he did a little bit. Like he had some of that business in the office. It feels like he's trying to recreate the Lee Van Cleef character. Because that's what this whole movie is, is doing the exact same thing from the first one. And my and I guess that's my thing, is like, you don't need to be Hauk. Hauk was his own character in that movie. You need to yeah. be Stacy fucking Keach. You need to gruff that voice, chew a cigar, and be that <laughs> guy instead. Well, because yeah. that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I needed more cigars from him. I, and maybe it's just like projecting the actor there more than anything but i'm just like i wanted more of your natural type than what i got in this movie Mm. but you know pam greer as hershey lapalmas this is the first time we've talked about pam greer oh wow before this beyond the valley of the dolls women in cages the twilight people black mama white mama coffee scream blackula scream 
Foxy Brown, Grease Lightning, Ford Apache, The Bronx, Something Wicked This Way Comes, The Vindicator on the Edge Above the Law, and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. After this, Mars Attacks, Jackie Brown, fucking phenomenal movie, Jawbreaker, Snow Day, mm-hmm. Slow Burn, 3AM, Love the Hard Way, Ghosts of Mars, The Adventures of Pluto, Nash, The L Word, Larry Crown, The Band with the Iron Fists, Bad Grandmas, and Bless This Mess. <laughs> I would watch Bad Grandmas just to watch Pam Greer be a fucking awesome badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I love her. I, lo- I, I loved her from the L Word, so. Her Bless This Mess. I'm really sad that show got canceled because it was really cute. She actually has one of my favorite quotes so far from this year. She had an interview about her career, and it was, uh, when you earn it, they can't take it away from you. Yep. I'm just oh, like, I yeah, love that. I love that. That's great. Yeah. She, again. She's just, she's a badass woman. This character is so hamstrung. She is. And so mm-hmm. and kind had, of repulsive. If they had taken away the things we've already discussed, they had taken those out of the script the character is still amazing and cool and has this connection mm-hmm. with with Snake that makes sense. Yeah. And and she still exists yeah. in a way that is still amazing. Like literally for me, because mm-hmm. some of the stuff is awkward, but for Snake being as confrontational as he is, I get it. And so there's a level of that where I'm like, I believe Snake Plissken as a character would do that. But the voice pitch is what bothers me the most. No. That's not acceptable. Fair. It's not acceptable. <laughs> I don't. I don't care when it was made. This. This is not all okay. Right. Yeah, I know. They're groping. All of it. It's not acceptable. Yeah, that's fair. None of it. Like I don't right. care. It's wrong. It's just wrong. I'm not going to defend that. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I think it's good to acknowledge the time, not no. as an excuse yeah. or as a way of saying, "Well, it was okay. It was 96." It's more to show like if you're not familiar with 96 why this was in the movie in 1996, 2020 we ain't putting right. up with this shit. Oh no. Yes, it was still yes. wrong in 96 and we're here in 2020 to yes. say how wrong it was. Yes. Yeah, totally agree with you. 2020 yeah. we're going to learn some shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but just get rid of that. It's about time. Get rid of that because Pam Gear is so fucking awesome. Pam is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the, I'm not fucking helping. You got 10 million of those over there. We can get you this. Okay. <laughs> Does not miss a beat. It's like, She's no, man. Great. She's great. No. I love her. She's amazing. And finally, Bruce Campbell as the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills. We have never spoken about Bruce Campbell on this show before. <gasps> That's true. Wow. Before wow, this, okay. The Evil Dead, Going Back, Crime Wave, mm-hmm. Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, mm-hmm. The Hudsucker Proxy, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., The Quick and the Dead, Congo, Hercules, The Legendary's Journeys, Xena, Warrior Princess. After this, Mikhail's Navy, The Majestic, Spider-Man, Bubba Hotep, Serving Sarah, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, Spider-Man 2, Man with a Screaming Brain, Sky High, The Woods, Spider-Man 3, My Name is Bruce, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Cars 2, The Color of Time, Oz the Great and Powerful, Burn Notice, Ash vs. the Evil Dead, Tangled the Series, and The Last Kids on Earth. Oh, yeah. Wow, did not know that uh, it was that long of a list. Oh, and he's been in so (laughs) many other movies that are all straight to video titles. Like, that is his sense. Mm -hmm. but these are all the big things he's done. I mean, I... It is a perfect character. It's perfect. I love how they oh, make yes. him up 
Because um, if you don't know yeah. that that's him, you probably wouldn't know. Of course, he's got the very iconic chin. But because he's mm-hmm. made up, you can't, like, you don't know if that's the actor or if that's the makeup, which I appreciate. When you hear his voice, you but figure then it he out starts, pretty damn quick. Then he starts talking and you're like, that's Bruce Campbell. <laughs> he's got a pretty yeah. distinctive voice, kind of like Joe DiMaggio, where I'm just like, that's Joe DiMaggio. Oh, of course. It's but. such a wonderful role to put him in. It is. And it's it's the right amount. If you had had any longer with him, it would have been too much. You would like. I will say that's one of the scenes that is just long enough. It's one of the few bits in the movie that pays off pretty damn well. Yeah. Like these hooded, like you're like, who yeah. are these hooded figures? And then you all see them and they're all plastic surgery disasters. And you're yeah. like, oh, fuck. This is perfectly LA. Yeah. Like you nailed yes. this one. It reminds me of Behind the Candelabra. Just the person who said, oh my God. Way too much plastic surgery. And like, oh no. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Great. No, agreed. I thought that was a fantastic scene. And I thought he was really, I mean, it's it's a role if for If they him. invested the kind of writing they did for that scene throughout the rest of this movie, we would have a much different discussion. Yes. And they just didn't. Yes. And I don't know why. Yeah. All right, moving on to Arpons. A.J. Langer as Utopia from My So-Called Life. Yes. She's Ray Ann. Mm-hmm. She's so capable yes, she is. of like, doing real acting. And she, oh, man, yep. she could have been so cool in this, this movie. This character had so much opportunity. Again, if this was a Patty Hearst style character. Yes. Who is desperately trying to be like, my dad is terrible. And then gets down there and is also like, yep. also Cuervo Jones is the fucking worst. Please this just save me. <laughs> this is terrible. Yes. And like, I'm a revolutionary, but they're fucking bad. It's like, I'm siding with Snake. Yeah. Yeah. Like you both suck. <laughs> this is done. Uh, just give her agency and make her the Valerie Bertinelli of this damn movie. Because where was yeah. that character for us? Yeah. That would have Nobody been a good gets choice. that agency in this movie. And it sucks. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Who could have been better? Goldie Hawn. No. Kurt wanted her to play the role, but she had an illness oh, at the time. To play the daughter? Now, maybe in that version of the script, wife. Okay, okay. Or like secretary of, first lady or secretary of state or something first like that. First lady would have made set. Okay, first lady. An easy rewrite sure. of the script and she doesn't have to be the daughter. Sure, true. Agreed. Um, wife would have been fine. Could have been fun. Th- I would yeah. have allowed that. Also, who could have been better? Kate Hudson. Also would have been great. His stepdaughter. Okay. And 96. Kate Hudson. Still kind of unknown. Yes. Nobody really knew who she was as an actress. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter because the script isn't going to be any better for Kate Hudson than it is for A.J. Langer. True. Um, No. I I mean, this movie does nothing for either of them. It just would have been like, I'm at work with my stepdad. Yay. So, you know, there's, there's precedence. He likes to keep his family around, which I respect a lot. Yeah, see, I think that really explains yeah. more of the gaps in his movie than anything else. Like, I'm taking out time from spend more time with my family. Family that explains more. Yeah, he's the best. He's a he's by all accounts <laughs> he is until un, until something else comes out. Otherwise, all accounts pretty good dude. Right yeah. at the time this of the recording of this <laughs> podcast episode, Kurt Russell Doesn't is a mean pretty he good hasn't dude. Been an asshole, we all have been, but. Pretty good dude. Sure. The sum is yeah. pretty good dude. He's done enough. And he's I mean, done enough work with enough yeah, people but... that if he'd done something pretty heinous, it'd have come out by now. Agreed. Especially given the past couple of years with like Kevin Spacey and people who've been on the scene 
long enough, things oh, yeah. would have come out. And I think I think uh, both Goldie Hawn and Kate Hudson, uh, they don't need to know Kurt Russell to no. have this part, no. right? They're both great actresses. They both could have pulled that part off. But I don't know if the way it was written and then edited and our final version that we needed a no. different actress because it's, it's one of those just... situations where you're like yeah who could have been better but it's like nobody really would have been better no as right. written there's nothing for it wasn't the actress's no. fault because like we know aj langer is mm-hmm. a phenomenal actress we've seen her be phenomenal in my so-called life if you want to hear a podcast go through all the episodes go listen to um i haven't seen that or no that's I... not the name of that podcast no i never saw that by our friends jen and micah it's been a minute. Oh, do they go through that was all their of first my so called life? First thing they did was my so called oh, life. Okay, and a lot of other names. Yeah, they do ninety four to ninety six, and they're hooked. She went to a therapeutic boarding school for about eighteen months, and so she missed all the pop culture for that period of time. So she's going through. Hint: It oh, wasn't wow. therapeutic. It wasn't therapeutic. It was like a work camp for yeah. kids in Montana. It wasn't great. Yeah, that's. That's yeah. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah. It was real bad. <laughs> yeah. But then they talk about cool. '90s pop culture. And it's, yeah. <sighs> That's cool. We have Brecken Meyer as a surfer, which I didn't even see him. I missed it. I love Travis Birkenstock. What? You're, you're, yeah, I have no. Your boy Brecken Meyer is in this fucking movie. I'm gonna go look up screenshots later what? and be like, where the fuck is he? He's my favorite member of Du Jour. <laughs> I love him. I don't. No, okay, I mi- I totally no, missed I it. I did too. We all did. Like I said, I'm going to find screenshots later. Okay. I'll send it to everyone. Okay, thank Somebody you. like, where the fuck was he? Oh, thank goodness. And then we're going to see it and we're going to be like, oh. Yeah. Oh, it's that guy. Oh. I think he is. <laughs> Makes total sense oh. now. We have Robert Carradine as the main skinhead. Really? Yeah, out of the bar, the guy, the guys hmm. with the shaved head, the one who actually has the lines. The half-brother of David and Bruce and the younger brother of Keith and Chris is the skinhead. There's too many Carradines. Oh, my God. There's wow, so many. yeah. You also know him as Lewis in Revenge of the Nerds and from Lizzie McGuire. Yeah, I was about to say, is that Lizzie McGuire's dad? Apparently. Wow. <laughs> Leland Orser as Test Tube, the scientist working for Cuervo Jones. He is like one of those that guy character actors that like oh, you yes. see his face a lot and know him. Most notably, he was in ER. He was one of the victims in Seven, and he was in Taken oh. One, Two, and Three with a recurring role in the franchise. Yeah, he's 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 a that guy. He's very much one of those that he's guys. A that he's guy. that guy. No offense. Yeah, you're a that guy. That's okay. That means you have a recognizable face. Sure. Also a surfer and returning from a prior surf movie, Bo Jesse Christopher Gromit from Point Break <gasps> is a surfer in this movie. Of course wow. Not. What else would he do? But he he was in both Point Breaks. That's true. He was in he was, yep. he's in Points Break. <laughs> points yep. Break. That's what we named the damn episode because that's what points it is. Points Break. <laughs> I like it. Points Break. <laughs> this is rumored, but it seems plausible. Isaac Hayes as the guard at the basketball court. It has to be him or a really oh. good double. It's. At the very least, it's somebody doubling. So when Snake goes to get out the basketball court and finds it locked, you see a very large black man with sunglasses, and it looks a lot like Isaac Hayes. It 
Interesting. I don't know. It's clearly a reference from John Carpenter one way or the other. Sure, sure. Um, Uh, But it is uh a long-standing rumor that that is actually Isaac Hayes just showing up in the movie. And finally, playing an orphan boy, Wyatt Russell. (laughs) (laughs) Little Wyatt Russell. Because he has to have his damn family on set. Precious. I love it. Of course he does. Trivia. Kurt Russell and Bruce Campbell share the same stunt double, John Casino. Interesting. And he doubles for both of them to this day. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Aged with them, I guess. On opening weekend, the entire Western U.S. had a regional power outage in the grid. Those outages would have been similar to the ability of the Sword of Damocles EMP. Oh, wow. That's... In fact, many theaters lost power during the film, sometimes right after Pliskin activated the EMP code. That's amazing. (laughs) That would have been a cool marketing stunt. That would have been a cool marketing stunt. And others got hit by the outages right after they left the movie. So John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars was actually supposed to be the third Snake Pliskin movie, Escape (gasps) from Mars. Sure. Sure. Yep. What? I would have watched I that. Too. But after this movie's <laughs> failure, he decided to completely scrap it, rewrite the screenplay, and change Snake Plissken to the character Desolation Williams. Desolation Williams. So, Ghosts of Mars, secretly a third Snake Plissken movie. I'm a little sad it's not a third Snake. I mean, it would have been terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In such a good way, possibly, though. Right? Mars? We'd have to find a reason to shoot him out to Mars. He'd be infected with some sort of new alien. We could write this movie. Well, I mean, that that just makes me want to go watch Ghosts of Mars and be like, okay, can I shift a few things around and insert Snake Plissken? Probably. Mm -hmm. Because if if that's the case, then okay, we got it. You know? Yeah, true. The Happy Kingdom was supposed to be at Disneyland. Disney refused to give mm-hmm. permission. Of course they did. Of course, which is why it's the Happy Kingdom. But I mean, they don't let they don't let other films film there. Oh no! Like, even no, like it has to be all about promoting Disney for you to be allowed to film at Disney. Disney's very specific. Yeah, I yeah, that's not surprising. Still, at all. there's a world where I'm just like, oh, but it would have been so good. Oh yes, so it would have been. It just doesn't. That doesn't seem like a surprising no. move from Disney. That seems. Instead, <laughs> they use the town square from Back to the Future. Yeah. Oh, okay. That feels accurate. Yeah. For the final escape, the growling effects came from Kurt Russell's Russell Terrier Schindler, and then they dropped the growling an octave in post-production. <laughs> he has, okay, so he has a dog. Uh-huh. That's a Russell Terrier. Named Schindler. Named Schindler. That's too much. <laughs> It's a little much. It's a uh, it's a little I much. The, I get having a Russell Terrier because, okay, naming it Schindler. All I know is, yeah, it's weird. I want to go have a cookout at Kurt Russell's house. Oh, for sure, dude. That's all I want. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Go go have burgers and beers in a pool with Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, Do yes. you know how much fun that would be? Everyone. A lot. It will be the most fun. Wait, but now you're talking about wanting to be in a pool with Kurt Russell, and now I feel like this is a different podcast. I mean, <laughs> are we wrong? I mean, I'm here for this. No, you're not wrong. <laughs> Everything you said is correct, David. <laughs> uh, Kurt never gets in the pool. He just makes the burgers. Fair. Okay. He's, he's just dad. 
He's just going to be dead the that. whole time. Yeah. This movie was used as evidence in a murder trial. A stuntman who worked on the film, Wayne Montano, was on trial for the murder of his brother. An eyewitness saw Wayne at the crime identified him by using footage from this film. So he positively ID'd Montano by using the film footage and saying oh. that is him. Oh, because he's in the movie. Because he's a stuntman in the movie. I was thinking his alibi would have been, I was in the movie during the time of the murder, and therefore I couldn't have. Because it was an eyewitness, they're saying, I saw him do the crime, and I know I can mm-hmm. pick him out from as a stuntman in this movie. Okay. Yeah. So I can positively ID him. Okay. Okay. That does make sense, because that's very hard to pick out a stuntman in a film. It feels like a movie this cursed would show up in a murder trial, sure. you know? At least it's for, sure. like, good reasons? Yeah. Catching a murderer mm. reason? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say that's a good reason. The building that Pliskin crashes into is the Black Tower at Universal Studios, where all of the Universal executives work. Nice. Quote John <laughs> Carpenter, I've had my own fights over there and have always wanted to take something through it. I like him more. <laughs> I respect this. Yeah. Respect. Oh, I respect John Carpenter. This. And finally, during the hijacking, Utopia has a big true love waits bracelet on. Uh, a match for the virginity pledge of oh, the same name. I'm going to go throw up now. <laughs> wow. I'm going to throw up hard. What a perfect move. That's yeah, good. that's a good move. Again, if the production design details and the writing of some of these sequences got carried through the whole movie... It would be so good. I could even forgive the CGI. I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I can't. I can't forgive the bad CGI. All of the detail because you clearly had it, but you just didn't do enough. (sighs) It's a shame. Well, we get to ratings. Ratings. Every film has its own rating system. I mean, I feel like the EMP remote is the most Mm -hmm. obvious. Okay. Or surfboards. (laughs) No, go remote. Go remote. (laughs) I'll go first. Boy, it's not good. And I want it to be so good. Mm-hmm. I want it so good. It's bad in its mediocrity, which is really the, the biggest shame. Because if it had failed spectacularly and had swung for the fences, at least I could like enjoy it a little more. But it's just kind of boring. Still, it's competently made. There's some really good acting in it. And it's just a really shitty story. I'm going to give it two EMP remotes. There's still a lot to like from this movie, mm-hmm. but it's not enough to make it a good watching experience. I, I'm i a big fan of like cheesy, campy 80s action movies, 80s, sure. 90s action movies. I am here for that. And I think if Escape from LA had been the first, I might actually rate it higher because yeah. I would feel like, okay, but it fell into this fun, campy, it was that time period. And I mm-hmm. love that time period but because escape from new york i think was so well done you can't then come in and make this actiony campy cheesy 80s 90s movie i'm gonna give it two and a half and the half is simply gonna be because of snakes arms and butt it it gets a half for that fair (laughs) very fair fair i think i'm i'm gonna have to give it a two I'm also too. I'm not gonna rewatch this. I will rewatch New York. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I won't rewatch this. Yeah. No. I mean, I might pause to appreciate the arms and the butt. Sure. <laughs> which I really think 
arms are one point and butt is the other point. That's fair. That's really what it comes <laughs> down to. That's... Um, but yeah, I'm just, I just, yeah. The first one is so good. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's so good and so timely. And this one had so many good elements. It's execution just sucks. Yeah. But I think, I think we figured out how you can fix it. So. Well, we've talked about both of these movies and we've come to the end of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us for both of these films. For two films. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And if people want more Kristen, where can they find more Kristen? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, is no Jedi, um, or at diceupgames.com or roleplaynetwork.com for some of my gaming and podcasting stuff. She does a lot of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> and you're good at it. Aw, thanks. All right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.